Did you say you saw someone steal a police horse this week? I'll send you the video, Gus. I sent it to the firefighter. All-time classic. All-time. It, it, it might have stopped when they pulled Reggie Barry out the car and Reggie Bibby out the car. I mean, this was a... I'm going to send this to you. The brothers had his black power fist, and they're like, where did you get the police? They stole the police. Oh, Come on. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm totally wounded. That's... Chicago. Uh, Gus, I just want to report that that, that stealing the cowboy, uh, stealing the horse uh, was a false report. The guy who was uh, videotaped, he actually owned that horse. And he was falsely accused of stealing a police horse and basically got his car spray, uh, paint, uh, spray painted saying, return the horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was a false report. Can't do it. A video of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky circulated widely on social media last spring. It showed him calling on his soldiers to surrender to Russia. But that never happened. The video was a deepfake. These are images or recordings that have been manipulated to misrepresent someone's actions or words. And the fake video of Zelensky wasn't that well made, but it got traction after hackers managed to get it briefly on Ukrainian television and the broadcaster's website. As technology evolves, experts warn deepfakes will become harder to spot and even further undermine public trust. Hani Farid is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a digital forensics expert. He joins me now. Welcome, Hani. Good to be with you again, Shannon. Just how good is the technology to make these kinds of images, videos, other things right now? I've been studying uh, manipulated media for over 20 years now. And what I've seen over the 20 years is every few years, the technology gets better and better for manipulating media. But I've never seen anything like the last five years where we now can whole cloth synthesize an audio in your voice, a video of you saying and doing something you never did. And what is really dramatic about this technology is that we have democratized access to what used to be in the hands of Hollywood studios and state-sponsored actors to now anybody can generate this. And that's a very different threat vector in terms of disinformation campaigns meant to sow civil unrest, interfere with uh, democratic elections. Every few months, we see more and more advances that are really dramatic and exciting in some, in one hand and worrisome in the other hand. Can you give an example of one of these? Yeah, my favorite recent one is the work from OpenAI called Dolly. It has taken the internet by storm over the last few weeks. It is what is called a paint by text. And the way it works is you go to their website and you just type in. Uh, make me an image of a squirrel wearing a life jacket uh, surfing in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and anything in your head. And it will make an image that is eerily pertinent to that. And that is really impressive. But you can also see why that can be incredibly dangerous. And of course, when we then are able to do that, not just for images, but for audio, now you're looking at potential real challenges for discerning what is real and what is fake on the internet. You have also talked about another risk that actually, as this technology is more democratized and accessible, you actually don't have to go down the road to make that fake video or yeah. picture to inject doubt. Um, can you explain this idea? I think this is what keeps me up at night more than the actual fake content. If we enter a world where any story, any audio recording, any image, any video can be fake, 
well, then nothing has to be real. We can simply dismiss inconvenient facts. A video showing police violence, it's fake. Uh, a video of human rights violations, it's fake. A video of a candidate saying something offensive, it's fake. How then do we reason about the world? If everything can be manipulated, how do we get news in a trusted way? And that long-term, that is what really worries me. How do you approach kind of peering around the corner and preparing for what's coming next, whether it's Dolly-like generated videos or live videos that are faked? I guess, how are you approaching these problems? We shouldn't think about where the problem is today. We should think about where the problem is tomorrow. And I can tell you that we are going to enter a time when these deepfake videos and images and audio start to become more prevalent in disinformation campaigns. And the hope is that we can get out ahead of that, not to stop it, but to mitigate it. The only hope we have is to develop technology that takes it out of the hands of the amateurs, the average person on the internet, and makes it more difficult, more time-consuming, more risky to produce these. But we should acknowledge that it's always going to be possible to create fake media. Well, but as you say, these, these are technologies that have been essentially become democratized, that people do have access to. So, I mean, what does that mean? Is, is there a regulatory response here? Is it, is it on the companies themselves that are developing these technologies to you know, decide how to police their use? I think the fact is that the regulatory regime moves way too slowly. Members of the U.S. Congress are simply not sophisticated enough, frankly, to understand the complexity in these technologies. I want to see companies have some reasonably strong guardrails to prevent abuse. But here's what we know. No matter how good the top companies are, there's going to be a bad actor in this space. And the bad actor is going to get a hold of that technology. And we've already seen that in the form of non-consensual sexual imagery. Revenge porn. Exactly, revenge porn. The worst example, use case of deep fakes, is now absolutely everywhere. In the technology sector, we often ask if we can do something. And I think that we should start asking, should we do something? Because the fact is, once you develop these technologies, there is no controlling them. And I think a lot of researchers are developing technologies because they can and not necessarily because they should. If the downsides of a technology are so much greater than the upsides, maybe we shouldn't be developing these technologies in the first place. So for listeners out there who are just sort of living their lives, you know, browsing the Internet, how worried should they be about this problem right now? I think they should be worried about disinformation generally. Um, the internet is awash with nonsense and lies and conspiracies and beyond the deep fakes. And I think that if you are somebody who is getting the majority of, if we can call it this news from social media, you should stop. I think people should start to grow weary about being lied to and being manipulated every minute of every day and return to the trusted sources so that we can have honest conversations about what's going on in the world. Hani Freed, professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks so much for joining us. Great talking to you, Shannon. Brian, how cool can she be? She's from Buffalo. And what's wrong with Buffalo? <laughs> what's in a name? Or better yet, what's in the changing of a name? In recent weeks, Governor Kathy Hochul and Erie County Executive Mark Polenkars have used the name East Buffalo when referring to the city's east side. This follows the trend of other local officials using East Buffalo and West Buffalo instead of East and West Side. Maston District Common Council member Ulysses Wingo has gone as far as proposing a formal name change that is now up for public comment. What's the reasoning behind this sudden public push? 
Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown says talks have recently gained more traction, but it is a topic that has been discussed for years and that a name change could help remove certain stigmas long associated with the East and West Side names. I think when we describe certain parts of the city as sides, that is kind of pejorative. It has a negative connotation that is not used for North Buffalo or South Buffalo. While not seeing eye to eye on many issues with the mayor, former Democratic mayoral candidate and Fruit Belt native India Walton spells it out a bit more explicitly. For my entire life, saying Eastside has been sort of a dog whistle to say where black people live. The conversation surrounding the name change has filtered through the hallways of high-ranking political and business leaders. Here's City of Buffalo Deputy Mayor Crystal Rodriguez-Dabney. The city's had it. The Buffalo Niagara Partnership has had it. The Racial Equity Roundtable has had it. The majority leader for the Erie County Legislature, April Bastins, has had it. And we know that our other partners in government have been now more intentional about saying East Buffalo, West Buffalo, as opposed to the East Side and West Side, which is more exclusionary. The one Buffalo mantra doesn't make sense to Rodriguez-Dabney if different names are being used for different neighborhoods. When we refer to them more inclusionary as a part of the city, going towards this idea that this is all one city and we have different parts that have different challenges. And Poet Laureate and Eastside resident Jillian Hainsworth says there are challenges facing Buffalo's east and west sides that need to be addressed before anyone gets into any rebranding efforts. It's the art of deflection. I feel like historically when we as a community say, like, here's what we need to fix, like, we want you to address this issue, the powers that be come along and they say, well, how about we focus on this little thing? Could this be a case of residents of a notorious provincial city making much ado about nothing? The people who live on the east and west sides of Buffalo, we're cool with being called the east side of Buffalo, the west side of Buffalo. Buffalo's history of neighborhood segregation is well known, especially following the racist mass shooting where the shooter targeted the supermarket specifically because it was located in a predominantly black neighborhood. Hainsworth believes local politicians have their priorities out of order. I've heard a few people say, oh, you calling it East Buffalo and West Buffalo, just like it rebrands it so that it doesn't feel so segregated. So make it less segregated. Don't be lazy. Do the work and improve the communities. But Brown pushes back on the idea that enough work isn't being done to solve community problems. Well, people are always going to have their opinions. I know as mayor of the city of Buffalo, I'm addressing the issues of the community every single day. Walton suggests breaking down the names even further. Considering the vastness of the east side, neighborhood identity is important. East Buffalo or east side, whatever you want to call it, is comprised of a number of very unique neighborhoods with their own needs, own character, own charm, such as Maston Park, Hamlin Park, the Fruit Belt. I think we should just call it that. But more importantly, I want to see us make investments, real investments in infrastructure and affordable housing and in jobs. Gentrification is another topic that is adjacent to the conversation. Fear of residential displacement in favor of business interests remains a pressing issue to Walton. I think the point should not be to attract investors, but to encourage investment, right? We already have the resources. These communities already have the tools and ideas they need. We need investment. We need help from our municipal, state, and federal government to to right the wrongs. A recent Challenger article calls Wingo's resolution, quote, untimely and a divisive distraction that smacks of gentrification. Thomas O'Neill White, WBFO News. If you are a person of color, and we are in the system of white supremacy, 
you will be forced to dislocate from wherever you are if wherever you are happens to be stable. And that's anywhere in the world. No matter which proposed route you look at, the northern extension of Florida's turnpike could destroy the African-American community of Royal in Sumter County. While the Florida Department of Transportation now says it will tweak the routes to minimize the impact, as WMFE's Joe Burns reports, residents are worried. 89-year-old Maitland Keeler sits at his neighbor's kitchen table talking about Royal, the community they call home. Oh, this place here is a, a historic place. We don't think we could ever find another place to replace Rome. Keeler worries he could lose his house. The state is planning a northern extension of Florida's turnpike, and all the proposed routes have one thing in common. They plow right through the heart of Royal. They would take out Keeler's home, the Baptist Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the community center, and the park. Royal is a historically black, rural, and agricultural community, with a tradition of property ownership and 40-acre and 80-acre land grants passed down from generation to generation. In Royal, the family's land ownership is everything. I remember when ladies used to have to walk all the way from Royal to Oxford to work for a couple of dollars a day, and they would always talk about, I got to pay my tax, and it's very important that we can keep Royal because those people sweat many days to keep this community. Keeler's neighbor is 97-year-old Annie Johnson. She and her late husband were farmers raising cattle, hogs, and chickens. Johnson says they supplied the town of Oxford. Five generations of her family still live in Royal. Her great-great-great-grandson plays in the other room. It was beautiful. <laughs> we it wasn't rich, but oh, it was, I wouldn't have took nothing for it, nothing in the world. The residents of Royal pride themselves on hospitality, on being a village where people look out for their neighbors and their neighbors' children. Road builders have hurt Royal in the past. At an intersection down the road, you'll find a scattered collection of tilting, moss-covered tombstones. Keeler says families from Royal used to take bodies by wagon to the old cemetery. It's a shame how they you know, put a road right down through the, the graveyard and destroyed all the graves. And then there's I-75, which sliced through Royal in the 1960s. A single overpass has kept the two halves of the community connected. In 1998, residents and the county commission stood against an earlier plan to route the turnpike through Royal. Now, once again, residents are rallying against the turnpike, supporting the no-build option, but really focusing on protecting their community. We need to stay steadfast, stay out of Royal, stay out of Royal. We support Noville, but stay out of Royal. That's Beverly Steele, speaking at a recent community meeting. She runs a nonprofit and works in the Historical Center, where the walls are lined with books, exhibits, maps, framed articles, photos, and portraits of Dr. King and the Obamas. Many years ago, she returned from corporate offices in New York to take care of her mother, who is now 100 years old. Steele says the connection to elderly family members sustained Royal. What they had was ownership of land, so they wanted to keep it and then pass. That's all they could pass down through their generations, so they stayed here. So there was always someone here out of all of these families that maintained in the community and maintained the land. Shortly after the Civil War, former slaves settled here, and it was known as Picketsville. 
the story says that our people came from the old green plantation. I love saying it that way. My aunt says it that way. Next to the Withlacoochee River. By 1891, when a post office was established, it was called Royal. Steele says an old story handed down by white settlers in the late 1840s tells of a community here of freed Africans. And they had already named it Royalsville because they were kings and queens in Africa and they wanted future generations to remember that they came from royalty. Steele is leading an effort to add Royal to the National Register of Historic Places as a rural historic landscape. University of Central Florida anthropologist Edward Gonzalez Tennant has worked on their application with the Florida Department of State. Generally, this remains small-scale, family-based farming, tobacco and other crops, cash crops, of course, um, that uh, the residents of Royal grew and processed with their own hands on their own properties, carried them to nearby towns, um, and that's how they made their livelihoods. Gonzalez Tennant says many other rural African-American communities in Florida disappeared amid racial violence and migration to cities. He points to Rosewood, which was destroyed by a racist mob, and Santos, where black property owners were bought out for a cross-Florida barge canal that never came. Gonzalez Tennant says plans for the Turnpike and Royal reflect a pattern seen throughout the U.S. A lot of minority communities like Paramore in downtown Orlando have been devastated by new highways. Today, in the 21st century, when we sit here and we look at Royal and we see that it's survived to the present, I think we have a very unique example of a Florida African-American community. Residents found out about the Turnpike when they received letters from lawyers who specialize in eminent domain cases. That's when the government takes private property for a public use. Since then, community members, the city of Wildwood and Sumter County, have brought the impact on Royal to the attention of FDOT planners. The city and county propose a route crossing I-75 south of Royal that could still take out the western side of the community, where a new landowner is pursuing industrial zoning related to the turnpike. FDOT says it's listening to the concerns. A department spokeswoman says the initial maps did not take Royal's history into account. In an email, she says the department will, quote, refine the corridors to minimize the impacts. On a wall in the historical center hang sketched portraits of Peggy Davis, the Reverend Matthew Beard, and Polly Patterson Weidman, known as Big Mama, all residents of Royal who lived more than 100 years. Steele calls it the Wall of Honor. Every day I walk into this center, they are smiling at me, saying, continue the legacy, continue what we brought to this country, continue what we brought into our families. Her mother's portrait could hang there one day. Joe Burns, WMFE News. Any questions? I bring many blessings with my man high tech and he from the natty. One of Ohio's oldest African-American cemeteries is maintained by Cincinnati's Union Baptist Church. But United American Cemetery in Madisonville is facing a problem beyond the church's resources. Human sewage seeping up from the ground. The cemetery has been closed to the public for nearly a year, while the church has struggled to get answers. Walking through United American Cemetery on Duck Creek Road, you see a lot of green hillsides dotted with headstones. A large area near the center is roped off with bright orange caution tape. I don't know if you can look in the marshy area that's around in these cattails. You can see that it's wet all in here. Um, there are graves all in here. And um, they're now 
under this contaminated water. John still passes an attorney representing Union Baptist Church. He says this is where lab testing showed the highest levels of contamination. If you stop and sniff, um, you, you, you can smell the stench, and there's no, no question of what we're smelling. It's feces. The smell comes in waves as we walk through the grounds. The church paid for private testing that found extremely high levels of fecal coliform in the surface water. The EPA says it's unsafe to contact water with these bacteria levels above 200. The lowest of the samples last June was over 1,000. The highest, 51,000. The church immediately closed the cemetery. But it wasn't enough for local government agencies to take action. Still Pass said the Metropolitan Sewer District did an inspection and figured out the sewer leak wasn't coming from a public system, which means there's nothing MSD can do about it. When the Cincinnati Health Department came to the site last August, an investigator said he didn't see any sewage and closed the complaint. The church paid for more testing in November, which showed the contamination had gotten even worse. Meanwhile, hundreds of families can't visit their loved ones' graves or bury anyone else. How can your ancestors rest in peace when they got fecal water flowing over their casket? Daniel Buford's father was buried here in 1993, alongside seven generations of ancestors. We're trying to defend the dignity of people who can't defend their own dignity. And it's, and it's, uh, it's an affront to human dignity to have your final resting place polluted by sewage. So where is the sewage coming from? Still Pass thinks it's pretty clear. What we're smelling here is stuff that doesn't flow uphill. And the only property uphill from this property is, is, the, is the bank property. He points up past the property line to the Fifth Third Bank Madisonville office building. Stillpass thinks there's a leak in the plumbing system that ends up in the cemetery downhill. Fifth Third's corporate communications office declined an interview. In a statement, it said the bank tested the plumbing systems and didn't find a leak. Union Baptist Church is already suing Fifth Third for a separate issue. Stillpass says the office building directed all of its stormwater runoff directly into the cemetery, slowly eroding the soil and disturbing dozens of graves. In response, Fifth Third spent about $600,000 to redirect stormwater drains to a municipal system. Stillpass says it didn't solve the entire problem, and the lawsuit is ongoing. Councilmember Mark Jeffries saw the sewage problem firsthand about a month ago and immediately called the Cincinnati Health Department. At the end of the day, what we really want is to allow the cemetery to open back up where it's safe for families to visit their relatives. Less than a week later, inspectors were dropping dye packs in a toilet at the Fifth Third building. None of the dye surfaced in the cemetery groundwater, so they tested plumbing systems at a neighboring apartment building and high school. Still nothing. What we're trying to solve for is to understand the source of this human fecal matter so we can stop the source first and then second that we can clean it up. The health department plans to do more dye pack testing at the Fifth Third Madisonville office building. Stillpass says even when the sewage and runoff problems are solved, it will be difficult for Union Baptist Church to pay for the cleanup and repair the damage. Becca Costello, 91.7 WVXU. Medical apartheid. The dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The American Heart Association estimates that half of black women in the United States have some form of heart disease. Half.
They're also more likely to die of the disease and at younger ages than white women. Now, for the first time in its nearly 100-year history, the American Heart Association has named a woman of color as president. Dr. Michelle Albert has spent her career studying the cardiovascular effects of heart disease on black women. She's a cardiologist at UC San Francisco, and she joins me now. Welcome to Press Play, and congratulations. I am honored to be here, Madeline. Really thrilled. Well, honored to have you. And I understand your work uh, primarily focuses on heart disease in black women. And as we said in the intro, there's a huge disparity. Why is that? What are the factors that lead to higher heart disease in black women? As you already stated, 50% uh, of black women have cardiovascular disease um, because many of them have high blood pressure. High blood pressure is the number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And in fact, cardiovascular disease life expectancy difference um, between, for example, black women and um, white men can largely be explained by the risk related to hypertension. Um, mm -hmm. So getting your blood, knowing your blood pressure, uh, getting your blood pressure controlled, normal blood pressure is 120 for the top number, uh, 80 for the bottom number. Well, what leads to that? Why do black women have higher blood pressure than white women and white men. It is pretty well known that, you know, sort of being overweight or obese, um, your soft intake, um, having lower physical activity levels, um, all are factors that contribute uh, to high blood pressure. But the exact reasons why uh, specifically um, there is a higher uh, level um, in black women uh, compared to uh, white men or white women or, or many other groups for that matter. Um, is not specifically known. What about black men? What is the comparison there? Black women tend to have higher blood pressure than, you know, black, a little bit higher than black men. I think from a, a large, you know, sort of pr large perspective, um, really when we look at race ethnicity, the black diaspora, regardless of whether uh, someone is from the United States or elsewhere, tends to have higher um, blood pressure. So let's talk a little bit about you and how you arrived here uh, to this moment in your career. You grew up in Guyana in South America, and I understand when you were around 15 years old, your family moved to Brooklyn, New York, and you were raised by your grandparents. And talk a little bit about your upbringing and how it led you to medicine. When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? I've always been the type of person who wants to, you know, sort of think broadly and and, and hopefully contribute to a process uh, that's making a difference in people's lives um, through multiple parts of their lives, uh, health, education, um, and other aspects of life. And so for me, my lived experience and coupled with now my academic training, you know, have really informed my mission and activities um, and, and professional work over time. And how old were you when you said, I want to be a doctor? I would say um, probably about 14 and a half. And that was acutely triggered um, by the sudden death of my grandfather. And as you mentioned, I was raised by my grandparents. And uh, at the time, you know, we were at home and my grandfather had gone out um, to do some purchases. And a neighbor came back by and said, hey, your grandfather just dropped dead. Um, on, on the street. <laughs> and as you might imagine, that was a shock. He never got any CPR. And certainly there was no defibrillation, you know, in that time. And, and so 
that you know drew me closer to wanting to be interested in in the heart um and then i think ultimately you know cardiovascular medicine is something or heart disease is something that you know i was really drawn to beyond the family you know personal part for me it's very mechanistic in thinking um where you can actually put two and two together once you know the basics um and it's a lot of fun and it's the number one killer in the world globally right so so a lot of challenges there a, a big um puzzle to try to fix I'm really interested in the personal side as well, though. So you're you're very close to your grandparents, I, I understand. And so your grandfather died of a sudden cardiac arrest. And um, you decide to go into cardiology. But as a black woman, there are very few black women cardiologists, even today, very few women cardiologists. And so how was that for you when you decided you wanted to enter this profession and go to medical school and you saw you were one of the only black female faces uh, in the cardiology department? So for me, um, it is really interesting because um, I've spent a lot of uh, my cardiovascular career, you know, feeling uh, somewhat isolated. Um, as I, you know, have made my journey uh, through the uh, training systems. Um, and I'm in academic cardiology as well. And academic cardiology is, um, you know, sort of very, very classic and very, you know, sort of straight by the books. And so, uh, yeah, it's isolating. If persons are underrepresented in terms of the training process, in terms of uh, folks who are in leadership, um, then that has a direct effect on the care um, that patients get. It has a direct effect on the research that's done um, in medicine. We know that clinical concordance, that is um, the um, concordance between a patient and their provider, whether that provider be a, a physician, a, a nurse, um, a pharmacist, actually uh, improves uh, health outcomes. Um, and so if mm -hmm. the numbers are low, then in terms of persons of color, um, especially um, persons from the African and, and Black diaspora, um, then the care will suffer. Yeah. Okay, so now that you are the new head of the American Heart Association, what is your top priority? A major uh, throughput for me um, as president of the American Heart Association will be uh, really infusing and bringing to light and action um, the importance of economic adversity um, in uh, cardiovascular health. And whether that be through um, addressing that in the scientific ar arena, in our advocacy arenas, and other arenas. Well, that is really interesting, connecting health to the rest of uh well-being, to economic well-being, to cultural well-being, to um, racial equality, which doesn't happen too often in medicine. And medicine is often siloed and treats the disease as something that is uh, separate from all the other factors in someone's life, which is, as, as you have said, is not necessarily the case or can't be the case. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciated talking to you. It's an honor to be here. Dr. Michelle Albert the first woman of color to lead the American Heart Association. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. 
Black people and people in communities of color are expected to be the hardest hit as abortion bans sweep the country. But Black abortion providers are also worried about their futures and how the bans will affect their lives and livelihoods. Dr. Sunithia Williams is an abortion provider at the Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives in Huntsville, Alabama. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You've said that while you don't believe that abortion should be illegal, you will comply with the ban because you don't take for granted that you are a Black woman in Alabama. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. The state is already really familiar with who the folks are who are providing abortions, right? So I'm, you know, very well aware that the state knows exactly who I am. Whenever we provided care previously, you know, we had to send reports to the public health department. And so they know exactly who I am. And so as a Black woman, I'm really familiar with the idea of what happens to Black folks when they interact with the criminal justice system. And even in a situation where charges might be made and I was able to be vindicated, that in and of itself is potentially harmful to me. And so I am really kind of well aware as a Black woman that I want to be careful about how I'm moving, the types of decisions that I'm making, um, and making sure that I'm doing everything according to the letter of the law. And can you talk a bit more about the role that the Black providers, Black-owned clinics play in places like Alabama, where abortion access was already very limited even before this decision in terms of and actually not just abortion access, right, just health care access? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we are a black owned clinic um, and both of our abortion providers are black as well. The vast majority of our patients are people of color. And, you know, I think one of the things that was really important to me when I was starting to do abortion care is just what it means to have someone from your community taking care of you, right? Um, right? You know, abortion can be experienced by different people in lots of different ways. But for many folks, even if they're not having a difficult time with the decision or with the process of the abortion, everyone is sort of impacted by the stigma of what they think an abortion will be like. And so it's super frequent for folks to previously have come into our office and said, everybody is so nice and I didn't expect that and I didn't expect it to be this pretty and I didn't expect to feel this taken care of. Now, I mean, as you said, and we know, communities of color will be affected the most by these bans. What are your main concerns? Probably the biggest one is really about safety. We know that there are going to be some people who, when they find out that they're pregnant, um, they will have the resources to to go to another state and be able to get an abortion if that's what they're choosing to do. But there will be a lot of people who don't have the resources for that. And their pregnancies are going to continue. So I feel many, many concerns about the potential risk to the women in my community. I also have fears about criminalization in my community as well. In a place where the restrictions are so stringent, there is a, a significant risk to patients who might thought to be having had self and managed their abortion or, you know, otherwise criminalized um, because there is this concern that they had an abortion. That they themselves would be targeted. Correct. Right. And while that's not necessarily something that is on the books, right, there is not necessarily a law that says that a patient can't necessarily use these medications. Being accused of something, being arrested, being put in jail, having to come up with bail even before court proceedings, all of that has significant impacts on people's lives. 
So as a black abortion provider, what is next for you, given everything that has happened? The answer is I don't know. As of right now, I'm continuing to do my general obstetrics and gynecology work. Um, I'm continuing to offer prenatal care and attend births and, and that sort of thing. There has been discussion about, you know, the potential of doing some travel abortion care, but it's not something that I have committed to yet. It's long days away from your family, but at some point it may become too much and it may be too hard to stay. Um, and I say that from the perspective of, you know, in the last week, we've started to see patients who have come into our regular practice who are finding out that they're pregnant and don't want to be. And those conversations are even more crushing. It's hard, you know, when someone is coming to you and saying, I don't want to be pregnant and I don't know what to do. That is a challenging conversation to have. But to have that conversation and not be able to offer them one of the options that, you know, they may potentially want is devastating. It's devastating as a provider. Dr. Sunithia Williams is an abortion provider at the Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives in Huntsville, Alabama. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I would have thought uh, we would have taken advantage, or at least especially uh, people that have children. Uh, it seems like I've been hearing more of complaints from um, uh, Black parents. Um, you know, I work in telecommunications, and um, so I deal with a lot of the uh, customers firsthand. So I know all of the stuff that's going on as far as with um, the whole situation around um, being able to get um, and deliver internet service uh, to uh, black people. Um, you know, the pandemic kind of exposed all that, um, the lack of internet access uh, most black people have. And it just seems like um, I just heard more complaints um, we don't know how to maximize, um, even in, in chaos, um, there is a silver lining. And, you know, at least um, in the beginning, I noticed that when we were in lockdown and people were having to um, be forced to stay home and keep their kids home, you didn't have any, hardly any stories of you know, black kids being terrorized at school or anything like that. I mean, you, you hear some little things on Zoom calls, but nothing like we, we had grown accustomed to over the years, over the past 13 years, uh, the stories that we hear uh, of the verbal, physical uh, assaults that these kids are having to be subjected to. Um, like I said, I don't have kids, so I may have my um, biases, but I just, you know, I have nieces and nephews and I, I just, I just don't see a, a lot of black parents just trying to, um, take advantage of out of chaos, um, you know, to some degree, because I guess some of us are still walking around confused. Since the pandemic began more than two years ago, millions of children around the world have been unable to regularly attend school. And students without access to computers or reliable internet can't be taught remotely. The problems are especially acute in poor and less developed countries. Our special correspondents report now on the hurdles students face in three different countries, Venezuela, Uganda, and India. And we begin in Mumbai. 
The grease and grime of this garage are part of this 14-year-old's daily life now. He's been working here for eight months, earning two to three dollars a day for a few hours of labor. Because of his age, this work is illegal, and he's asked us to hide his identity. The pandemic forced schools to shut in Mumbai, many for almost two years. And this Mumbai teenager has no access to a smartphone or laptop. So his mother says attending his school's online classes was not an option. How would I buy a mobile phone? I'm concerned about getting food to eat. How can I think of buying a mobile phone? The COVID-19 lockdowns dried up her meager income, collecting scrap metal to sell for recycling. As the second eldest child in a single parent family with five kids, he started picking up odd jobs when the schools closed. And this teenager's income became vital to the family's survival. I can't go back to school now. I've forgotten everything. I've forgotten how to study. I come here, earn some money. That's how we make ends meet. At this government-run primary school, which only reopened last month for kids to attend classes in person, teachers say about half the children have fallen behind dramatically in their studies. Many going into their third year of education can't read or write because they didn't step foot into a classroom for two years and had little or no access to a device to attend online classes. Educators say the pandemic exacerbated income and opportunity inequalities that already existed. And they say it's teenagers who will experience the most lasting effects. Nirja Birla founded and chairs an education trust. But in any case in secondary school, you have a very high rate of dropouts. Uh, you know, so automatically if they've been out of school for two years, then, you know, chances are that they will not want to get back to school. Authorities in Mumbai have launched a mission to guide schools on assessing and supporting students to try to ensure there aren't further interruptions to learning. India has a large young population, half of which is under the age of 25. Education has been key to the country's progress in recent years in lifting the next generations out of poverty. But a study by Pew Research Centre shows that the number of poor people in India doubled in 2020 due to the pandemic-induced recession. With families still struggling, many fear they will get trapped in the cycle of poverty if their kids don't return to their studies. I want my kids to study and get a good job somewhere. When my children don't go to school, I feel this pain in my heart. I feel sad thinking that they'll have to work all their life. Her children and those of millions of other impoverished Indians now face the prospect of making their way in the world without the benefit of an education. I'm Isabel Nakiria in Uganda, where the COVID-19 pandemic continues to disrupt learning for millions of children. Children like nine-year-old Juliana Namakula, who is stuck behind her grandmother's grocery stall. Schools here reopened in January after the pandemic shut them for 80 weeks, but Juliana isn't going to school. Instead, she's helping her grandmother sell groceries in Chebandu, Islam in the capital, Kampala. I'm so worried that this child is not in school, and I don't see help coming from anywhere. Juliana started staying with her grandmother at the start of the lockdown after her mother fell seriously ill and could not fend for the family. She would be a fifth grader this year, 
but the $30 enrollment fee for public schools is completely out of reach and she knows she won't be able to continue her education. I feel bad and I always ask my grandmother why kids my age are going to school, yet I'm here at home. Juliana joins millions of children in Uganda who may never step into a classroom again. The National Planning Authority estimates 30% of Ugandan children will not return to school. Children who are now working, who got pregnant or married since the onset of the pandemic. Everybody say letter writing. Letter writing. Again. For those who have managed to go back to public school, classrooms are overcrowded. Up to 180 children are crammed into classes meant for 40. Two years of lost learning may never be recovered for many students in public schools. The government has promoted all students to the next grade to make up for lost time. But there's no easy answer about how they'll master the backlog of material they've missed. Educators say the high numbers of children in each classroom will likely mean lower mastery of skills at each grade level. Most of them are in classes, but they need remedial assistance. We are trying it, but the performance is not as good as it was before COVID. Refugee children have also been hit especially hard. At this camp in northern Uganda, children try to teach themselves during the lockdown, sharing the few learning materials provided by the government. Now that schools are open again, the government is rolling out a campaign on TV and radio to encourage parents to take their children back to school and to get schools to make allowances for those who can't afford the fees. But many of Uganda's school children will never return to class. Like Juliana, they are facing a future limited by their missed educational opportunities. I'm Maritrini Mena in Caracas, where children are learning in kitchens and living rooms pressed into service as classrooms to make up for closed schools. Primary school teacher Ana Muñoz belongs to an informal network of teachers opening up their homes to offer private tutoring to neighborhood kids in Petare, Venezuela's biggest and most populous slum. She says when the schools closed, not only did students stop learning new things, they unlearned what they knew before the pandemic. And that's not all. They've lost the studying habit, the habit of going to school and studying every day. Fifth grader Victor Pelayo tried to make do with online learning during the 18 months Venezuela schools were completely closed. But he doesn't have a computer or reliable access to a smartphone, and it was hard to learn without a teacher. I was not understanding. In October, classrooms reopen in Venezuela, but in both public and private schools, students are only going to school once or twice a week for a few hours at a time. The whole country is struggling with conditions that persist from the chaos that plagued Venezuela even before the pandemic. An economy in crisis, political repression, and millions of people fleeing the country.
Most schools have no running water. Many children do not come to school at all. And with salaries as low as $2 a month, Venezuelan teachers are leaving the profession. Educators warn without urgent action, an entire generation could be left behind. And Venezuela is not the only Latin American country with this problem. According to the World Bank, more than 7 million Latin American children may grow up unable to read proficiently because of the pandemic. Victor may be one of the lucky ones. For now, his family struggles to pay a dollar a week for his tutoring. But educators warn, until schools across Venezuela receive significant investment, the costs of lost learning will continue to grow. Carlos Cedeño is an educator and member of Venezuela's Parents Network. It's a loss of knowledge. It will also mean a loss in their incomes in the medium and long term. And finally, a loss in productive jobs for their country. It's that long-term effect that's most worrying. An economic and intellectual kind of long COVID with deep scars and a high cost for generations to come. For the PBS NewsHour, with Rebecca Bunden in Mumbai and Isabel Nakiria in Kampala, I'm Maritrinimena in Caracas. So is, is there a possibility you could become prime minister? Uh, I, I think that that is vanishing. I mean, I've about as much chance of, of being you're reincarnated as an olive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, why would you say that? Because politics or, 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 is nothing or being blinded by a champagne. But it's nothing if not ambition. Why, why couldn't you think about being prime minister? You could if you wanted to. Well, I suppose I could. I could. I mean, as you've already pointed out, I could be president of the United States. On, yeah, well, I guess. You know, there's, there's, there's no, you know, te technically speaking. But, you know, there, 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 I think there, there are limits to the credulity of our audience. You know, that's, that, that's, that's what I would say. You think the hair is holding you back? Honestly. <laughs> you know, until you mentioned it, until you mentioned it tonight, yes, I'd, I'd, never, I'd, never, I'd never regarded it as a, as a, as a, as a drawback. All but, right. Anyway. It was almost inevitable. Boris Johnson's leadership of the Conservative Party and the UK has been in free fall since Tuesday when two of his top ministers quit, saying they had no confidence in their former ally. And since then, barely an hour has passed where a minister or aide hasn't quit. Many blamed what they saw as Mr Johnson's lack of honesty, integrity and competence, they no longer thought he was the right person to lead the party or the country. Let's hear now from Boris Johnson. He's been speaking on the steps of Downing Street. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now and the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate, the biggest Conservative majority since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was 
my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. The wave of resignations was triggered by revelations about the Prime Minister's handling of sexual misconduct allegations against a Conservative MP, Chris Pincher. But as our political reporter Rob Watson explains, Mr Johnson's government has been dogged by controversy for months. It's been a series of scandals, whether over the way in which... Um... The government itself followed lockdown rules during COVID, issues of protecting the MP accused of corruption. And then, of course, most recently when Boris Johnson was felt not to have been entirely straight with people about what he knew and when about an MP he'd put into a senior position who turned out to have some history, certainly allegations of a history as a sexual predator. And it's all sort of come to a head into this extraordinary crisis that we find ourselves in now. It's been a chaotic few days in British politics and the saga isn't over. But let's get some reaction now to what's happened so far. The leader of the opposition Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, says the UK needs Boris Johnson to go now. He's inflicted lies, fraud and chaos in the country. And, you know, we're stuck with a, function, with a government which isn't functioning in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And all of those that have been propping him up should be utterly ashamed of themselves. We've had 12 years of a stagnant economy, 12 years of broken public services, 12 years of empty promises. Enough is enough. And the change we need is not a change at the top of the Tory party. It's much more fundamental than that. We need a change of government and a fresh start for Britain. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says he made the right decision. The chaos and complete lack of integrity that has characterised Boris Johnson's premiership has in the last few days descended into complete and utter farce and all at a time when people in every part of the UK are really struggling uh, with very real challenges. So I think first and foremost there will be an overwhelming and very widespread sense of relief today that Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister, which should probably never have been allowed to happen in the first place, is coming to an end. I do think it is quite incredible, though, to suggest that he will remain as Prime Minister for another three to four months. I think the sooner he is out of number 10, and preferably that is today, uh, the better. More than 50 people resigned in protest at Mr Johnson's leadership. The Tory backbencher, Andrew Bridgen, says he's glad he's going, but thinks he'll be remembered as a successful leader. I think history will be kinder to Boris Johnson than I probably will be today or for the next week or two, or maybe the public will be. Uh, he will remember as the man who got us through Brexit, got us through Covid, yep. two enormous yep. uh, emergencies which most Prime Ministers would never see either of those issues, no matter how long they served in government. He's got us through those, but he's made the right decision now and we need to move on. The historian Anthony Seldon says Boris Johnson's brutal demise is unprecedented. No premiership has ever gone down in flames like this one in 300 years of British premiership. There have been 55 prime ministers. None has been so spectacular, so public, 
so humiliating and possibly so damaging, not just to the reputation of this particular prime minister, but to the office of prime minister and the country. Jonathan Marcus is a diplomatic commentator and a former BBC journalist. He explains how events are being viewed internationally. I think with considerable dismay, I think many may feel that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has got his comeuppance. Uh, I think what was fascinating about the external view of Britain throughout the whole Brexit drama uh, was just the sense of incomprehension, the sense of surprise, this idea that Britain, which had always been a pragmatic, a common sense country, had taken this great leap into the unknown. Uh, with no real clear sense of what its foreign policy was going to be in the future. Boris Johnson says he won't be leaving Downing Street today or possibly any time soon. He says he's going to wait until a new Conservative leader is chosen, who will then replace him as Prime Minister. But that's what he wants. And as we know, politics is unpredictable. Let's hear again now from Rob Watson. The political crisis this morning was what would happen about the standoff between Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party. Well, he has lost that standoff. But now we're into, well, does he, does he stay uh, until there's a new leader or does there need to be an interim leader? And obviously the problem that Boris Johnson faces is that there are many in his party who think, well, hang on a minute, if we're getting rid of him because he's unfit for high office, we don't think he's truthful, we don't trust his judgment, uh, why would you leave him there uh, any longer than absolutely necessary? But he seems to be, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to hear this, uh, a rather determined to stay. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time, and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention. We need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Officials say the suspected gunman fired 70 rounds into that crowd gathered to watch the parade. Police say 21-year-old Robert Cremo dressed as a woman before the shooting to conceal his identity. We've learned his weapon was legally purchased here in Illinois. Cremo arrested hours after the attack, after police got a tip from a resident who spotted his car in North Chicago. Police taking it from there. He first tried to get away, but was eventually taken into custody in Lake Forest. We have team coverage this noon, starting with Sally Schulze. She is live at the Highland Park Police Station. 
And this is where we just learned several new key developments in this case. Police telling us the suspect had planned this attack for weeks. They say he dressed in a disguise as a woman. He used a fire escape to illegally get up on top of a business on top of the roof, and he had bought several of these guns legally. They say the weapon used in this massacre was a high-powered rifle similar to an AR-15. Police telling us that he used that gun to fire more than 70 rounds into the crowd that was watching that 4th of July parade here in Highland Park. Six people were killed, more than 30 injured by that gunfire. As for why, police say there's no motive at this point. No evidence it was done because of race or religion. When police say they found when they finally caught up with him almost eight hours later, they say they found another rifle in his car, in his mom's car that he was using. Plus, he had purchased other weapons in the Chicago area recently. And certainly one of the more bizarre details, what he was wearing. I want you to listen to police describe the disguise he used to avoid detection. During the attack, Primo was dressed in woman's clothing, and investigators do believe he did this to conceal his facial tattoos and his identity and help him during the escape uh, with the other people who were fleeing the chaos. During the So police are saying that they believe that the suspect, who they now say is 21 years old, not 22, as they believe yesterday, the 21-year-old acted alone, they say. They were able to trace him, find him finally after those eight hours because of the gun, again, purchased legally in his name. They say the ATF helped a lot in that, and also a lot of videos that were brought in, tips from the public, who were, people were at that parade giving those tips to investigators. They're still asking for more help. They need more videos of this incident as they try to piece together a lot more pieces of this massacre and how it all came to play. And they are also saying that the public, while instrumental, they're again asking them to, if they've got videos, maybe of someone dressed as a woman, to send that into investigators. We're going to be staying here at the Highland Police Department as these new developments continue to come out. We are live in Highland Park. Sally Schulze, Fox 32, Chicago. Do you mind if we stay here a while or must you go home? There are no musts in my life. I'm free white and 21. You're lucky. An Illinois state judge denied bail today for the gunman who police say confessed to the July 4th massacre in Highland Park that left seven people dead. Authorities revealed that the gunman considered starting another shooting spree in Madison, Wisconsin, where he drove while he was avoiding police in Illinois. And there were more questions about how he was able to get his guns in the first place. Amna Nawaz has the latest. Today, in a closed hearing, the first court appearance for the 21-year-old alleged gunman behind Monday's attack, charged with killing seven people and injuring more than three dozen at a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois. The judge ruled that Robert Cremo III would be held without bond and that there was probable cause to hold him at this time for seven counts of first-degree murder. Most plan was Deputy Chief Christopher Cavelli of the Lake County Sheriff's Office shared new details of Cremo's plans as he fled to Wisconsin after the shooting. However, he did see a celebration that was occurring in Madison, uh, and he seriously contemplated using the firearm he had in his vehicle to commit another shooting. Cavelli said the gunman had about 60 rounds left at that point, but hadn't planned enough to carry out a second attack. The Highland Park attack, however, had been planned for several weeks. 
he'd legally purchased five guns, including the Smith & Wesson semi-automatic rifle used in the shooting, which was bought in Illinois in the last year. That despite two encounters with police in 2019, one after he attempted suicide, the second after he threatened to kill family, leading officers to confiscate 16 knives, a dagger and sword from the home. There were no charges or arrests in either case. Authorities recovered 83 spent bullet shells from the rooftop where Cremo took aim at parade goers. Investigators are still reviewing the gunman's social media posts and conducting interviews to determine a motive. Meanwhile, another American community grieves. Authorities today identified the seventh victim as Eduardo Uvaldo, a 69-year-old grandfather. And Highland Park's loss ripples far beyond this neighborhood. Among yesterday's visitors, Vice President Kamala Harris meeting with first responders and local leaders at the parade site. Officials say nine people, ranging from ages 14 to 70, are still hospitalized as of yesterday. Let's focus now on some of the questions being raised about how the gunman was able to obtain weapons after those 2019 incidents and what red flag laws can and cannot do. Jeffrey Swanson studies these issues. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University who looks closely at shootings. Professor Swanson, welcome back to the News Hour. Thank you for joining us. I want to ask you about these details we're learning. Here you have a young man who was twice flagged to authorities. He was still able to get a firearm owner's ID card. He passed background checks. He legally bought his weapons. Illinois has a red flag law on the books. Why didn't it work? Well, it is concerning. Uh, you know, warning signs always look more obvious and worse uh, when we view them through this remarkable device called a retrospectoscope. When we're looking forward, you know, there are a lot of people who have contacts with law enforcement, a lot of people who uh, look like they should, uh, you know, uh, they pose a risk of harm to self or others. So, uh, yes, and if people see something like this, uh, if people, uh, somebody, somebody around you is of concern, uh, you know, you should take action in calling the police. In this case, it's what they, uh, what they did. The question is, what can the police actually do? Uh, the red flag law is designed to give police officers authority to remove firearms. It's a civil restraining order. It's someone who poses a risk. Usually it's an imminent risk of harm to self or others. They can remove those guns uh, with a, uh, a court order, uh, and it's time limited. Uh, but, uh, you know, otherwise, uh, there's not uh, much they could do. If the person poses a risk uh, in, in a mental health crisis, uh, police officers have the authority to take that person in, uh, detain them uh, for usually about 72 hours for an evaluation. And if they meet the criteria, if they're dangerous and, and mentally ill, they can be admitted involuntarily to a hospital to mitigate that risk. That would have uh, conferred a gun disqualifying record. The red flag law can work, but if people don't know about it, don't know how to use it, there's no protocol in place, it's not routine, it's not scaled up to where uh, officers or others know uh, to use it, it's not going to do much good anyway. Well, as you say, of course, things are much clearer in, in hindsight, but there are some details I want to ask you about, because from a law enforcement perspective now, uh, we now know that they went to the home twice. Uh, they took away knives, a, a dagger and a sword after the family said that this young man threatened to kill everyone there. They were told he was getting mental health support, but then they say the family didn't want to move forward with a complaint. They didn't have any other information on threats. And even though local police flagged state police, that's basically it. That's all they can do. So is the bar 
for what law enforcement can do at the right place? I don't want to second guess what the police did in this case. It could well be that they should have done more. They should have done something differently. Uh, it is a, it's a real challenge in our country when uh, firearms are so prevalent. Um, what we need is an ensemble of laws. Uh, the red flag law is a, is a good tool. It's, it's a kind of a, like a Swiss army knife uh, or, you know, it's a nimble tool because we don't have to decide why somebody's dangerous at the time. Um, but they have to be dangerous, you know, uh, pose a risk uh, during a particular uh, time frame. Red flag laws would work better if we had universal background checks, if we did something about, um, you know, the illegal gun market in this country and the fact that uh, young people and or anybody for that matter can buy a weapon of war that uh, is designed to kill multiple people in, in, in a very short period of time with minimal physical effort. Uh, so this is a real puzzle. Um, red flag laws, uh, I still maintain, are a very important tool if, if people know about them and if they are widely used. We have evidence from Connecticut and, and, and Indiana, the first two states that enacted similar laws, that um, you know, uh, for every 10 to 20 of these legal actions, one life is saved by averting a suicide. Uh, that's what many of them are used for. And we have emerging evidence uh, to, to show that uh, in many cases in, in California and in other states, a uh, significant proportion of these are used when there is a threat of a mass shooting. We don't know in every case that it would have happened without this, um, but we do know that if, if these are used in a timely way, um, you know, it's going to remove uh, a key uh, element in, in one of these uh, horrible incidents. Other countries have the troubled young men who uh, are, are inclined to, to uh, hurt people or you know, or, uh, or saying scary things on social media, they don't have this problem that we have, where there's this very deviant cultural script uh, that's almost uniquely American that people follow. But a key element in that is is this access uh, to very lethal weapons. That is Professor Jeffrey Swanson of Duke University joining us tonight. Professor Swanson, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. LeBron, you are constantly faced with the din of noise from the outside, scrutiny and pressure. How, when everybody is coming at you, do you keep your head and perform at the level you do? Listen, uh, for me, I can't worry about what everybody say about me. I'm LeBron James from Akron, Ohio. From the inner city, I'm not even supposed to be here. Tonight will be the first time this week without a curfew in downtown Akron, Ohio. The city had it in place in response to protests that erupted Sunday after police released video of the shooting death of 25-year-old Jalen Walker. Those protests, a sign of weariness, heartbreak, and outrage over the death of another black man at the hands of police. Police say Walker led them on a chase during a traffic stop on June 27th. They also say they found a gun in his car afterwards. And as we wait to learn more about the details surrounding his death, those who knew Walker are sharing more details about his life. That includes Robert Hubbard, a local high school wrestling coach who knew Jalen Walker for years. He joins us now. Hi, Robert. Hello. First of all, I just want to ask how you're doing. I've had a little time to come grips with him, so I'm doing better. But when I first heard, I was just shocked, just total shock. It made no sense to me knowing the gentleman I knew, the, the young uh, wrestler I knew since he was about 
eight or nine years old. It just made no sense. Hmm. Tell us about how you came to know him. What what was Jalen like? I met Jalen through his father brought him to a, a youth wrestling team we have. And eventually I got him in high school when he was a kid that I never had any problems from. I've had some kids that have tested me and they pushed me. Jalen Walker was not one of those kids. Jalen was, you know, one of the sweetest kids, hardest workers. You know, one of those kids that, you know, I wish I had 10 of them on my team. That was the type of kid he was. Have you been in touch with Jalen's family since he died? I briefly spoke with his grandmother. I was more close with his father and his father passed away about four years ago. But I did just happen to see his uncle in passing yesterday. When it's rough, we keep seeing each other under these type of circumstances. Have you seen the video that the Akron police released of the altercation in which Jalen was shot and killed? I watched maybe the first three camera views before I couldn't watch it anymore. The Jalen I know that's totally out of character. I don't know. I understand he, he was going through some stuff. He just lost his fiance in a terrible car accident. But still seeing that, it seemed like the way that ended, I'm not a police expert on protocol or anything. You know, over these years, we've been talking about de-escalation. It seemed like there was no de-escalation. And once that car stopped, they were just on a hundred. As soon as they got out there, as the family say, it seems like you wouldn't treat an animal that way. It was, it, it was heartbreaking. I'm sorry. After watching it, it, it's, I mean, it was traumatizing. I wonder, given all of that, what would justice look like? You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. What I want is for nobody else to have to lose a loved one the way Jalen's family lost him. We should note here that police have said that there was a shot fire. They have pointed out that they, they did recover a gun from Jalen's car. That's what they say. But I mean, that could have been anything. When they shot him down, he had no weapon on him. So why were they so fearful of him at that point? I don't know. You're a parent. You're a father of sons. I, I guess I'm curious, given this and some of the other high-profile instances that we have seen across this country, deaths of Black men at the hands of police, what would you hope an encounter could look like should yourself, should one of your sons end up in this situation? It is clear that you don't believe it should look like what you saw happen to Jalen. Definitely. I mean, I think at worst, Jalen might have needed some help if they had handled that differently. If they had, a, you know, subdued him and got him in, they probably could have got him some help. This is somebody that has not hurt anybody. But now he's, you know, he doesn't get to go to his raiment like the gentleman in, in, in Illinois. And if my kids are having something like that, hopefully they can get him some help. When I think of my sons, like my, my son was home uh, this weekend from school. He just graduated from Ohio State in Columbus, and he, man, I had to give him an extra hug. Like, I'm so glad I have my son here. I, I can hug you, but if, if something like this happens, my wishes is that they can get him to help, not be judge and jury, but actually, you know, if he needs to be arrested, get him arrested. That would be my wishes, not to be afraid of him to the point that after I put 60 rounds in him, he still needs to be handcuffed. Robert Hubbard is a local high school wrestling coach who first met Jalen Walker when he was a young man and has known him for years. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you.
We're here with Keisha Douglas, Tops customer and community resident. Keisha, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You were actually in Tops on May 14th. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. How are you? How are you? So-so, I guess. Trying to make it through every day. It's really, it's hard, but I'm doing it. I appreciate you being here and willing to talk to us in what has got to be just an unimaginable time for you. Yes, thank you. Um, Some of our audience may find your story difficult to hear as it deals with the shooting itself. So we just caution anyone who may be sensitive to hearing firsthand witnesses from that day. Take me to the afternoon of May 14th. What, what brought you to Tops that day? I needed a juicy juice. A juicy juice. Yes. I had went to Tops on Harlem earlier that day and, um, to get a juice and they didn't have it. So, you know, throughout the day I did my running and then I had dropped my auntie Nene off at, at home. And on my way to my next uh, spot that I was going to, I was going past Tops on Jefferson and I said, oh, well, I'm gonna run in there and see if they have my juice. So I get in there and they had one bottle of the juice that I drink, just one bottle. One left. And I was like, oh, it was meant to be, I was happy. So I proceeded to, well, I had a choice between self-checkout and line checkout. I mean, you know, self-checkout or go to a cashier. Mm-hmm. I opted to go to ca- to register one because he didn't have any um, customers. So as I was getting in line, I mean, getting to the register, I put my juice down and the cashier at register two said to the cashier at register one, which was my cashier, how come you keep getting customers with one item? Then I keep getting customers with multiple items. He, she laughed, he laughed, then I laughed. In the process of me laughing, that's when we heard pop, 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 and then everybody stopped. Some people got down. We heard pop, pop again. Uh, for a second, I thought about getting down, but then I decided to, you know, run to the back. And once I started running, I had never looked back because I didn't know if I was going to be shot in my back, and I didn't want to see anything behind me anyway. Um, I made it to the back, and I made it to the cooler. And there was a young lady that I had followed into the cooler. She had went to the left and I had went to the right. There was an employee inside of the freezer who told me to come in there with him. And um, he got down. He was kneeling down. I'm assuming that he was calling um, 911. And in the process of him calling 911, there were people running past the freezer and out the back door. And I decided because there was still gunfires and it was just getting louder and louder, just seemed like it was getting closer. So I decided to run out the back door with the people that was running. And we were running up Riley Street and I was scared. I didn't know if I was going to be shot in my back running up Riley Street. And there was a young man. And thank you. I don't even know his name, but he opened up his door and he told us to come up into his apartment. I was the first one to make it to his his apartment. And as I was going up the stairs, uh, my legs gave out on me and I just prayed to God, let me make it to the top, make me make it to the top. 
I got to the top of the stairs. I got into his kitchen. I sat on a stool and I just screamed and I cried. I called my brother. And um, as I was talking to my brother, there was a, another woman up in there. She was hysterical because she had been separated from her daughter. And she didn't know what happened to her daughter. She wanted to go back. And, you know, the young man let us stay in his apartment until the shooting stopped. And, um, and the police came. And once the shooting stopped and we heard the sirens, a lot of, you know, some of the people started leaving to go back down. Um, I was one of the last to leave because my legs really wasn't working yet. I had to get my legs composed back. But um, once that happened, I proceeded back to the tops to the parking lot to get my vehicle. And as I was walking back, that's when I seen the man that was shot by the black car and then the first woman. Um, she was shot and then the other person and as I and it was a firefighter who came and turned the man over by the black car I guess to check his vitals as I was walking back to my car once I got to my car that's when I seen the suspect at that time he still had on his goggles and his hat and right before they put him into um, the car they took his goggles and his hat off and that's when I said a white boy did this and I just, I just screamed. It was, it was, I mean, I've seen dead bodies, you know, but they've been embalmed and, you know, in a casket. But seeing those bodies laying there, and honestly, had he waited two minutes, I would have been shot because I would have been walking out the door with a juice, you know. And that two minutes just sticks with me. And, it, it you know, it, it, it messes with your head. And with me being physically unharmed I feel like we've been forgotten about where they the, the dead they talk about the dead and my heart goes out to their families the wounded my heart goes out to them but again we were in that store too and I just feel like we're not counted as as an injured party do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Are, um, are you not, has there been no assistance for you? I mean, even sort of the, the most basic of trauma triage for you. As far as what's going on, as far as like victims services and stuff, yeah. it's so much red tape and, you know, they, they have to verify that you were in there and all of this extra stuff and... I just feel like at the end of the day, okay, it's been over 30 days. And I, I did my application May 24th at the Resource Center. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the only reason why I remember that was because that was the first day of my counseling. And um, I haven't heard anything from them. I called them um, on Tuesday, and I still haven't heard back from anyone. So right now... I mean, Felicia Brown, she's been helping and, you know, there's been a few other people that's been helping. But and I mean, when you go to the resource center, basically they're talking about heap, you know, well, we can give you heap. We What about basic money for your gas, money for your your pets? You know what I'm saying? Things like that. I was working before that shooting. OK, I went back to work that Monday. I couldn't stay. I went back that Tuesday. I couldn't stay. I tried to go back to work. And here I am. But I'm the one that that's not spoken about, you know, the city or the community. 
they're taking care of everybody but the physically unharmed ones. Okay, I wasn't shot, but I didn't come out the way I went in. Okay. And I really think that the survivors who were physically unharmed, I think we really need to get together because we're at the bottom of the list as far as who they're going to take care of. Okay. When the shooting first happened, they had all this stuff going on on Jefferson and giving out food and everything. How many of the survivors do you really think went back on Jefferson? Really? I, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you have not been passed. No, that area. I, no, I did go back once with my best friend because I was trying to find the house that uh, the young man had let us in right. to. But that was it. And believe me, being over there then was my anxiety was getting the best of me. And, and it made me feel even worse because I couldn't figure out, remember what house I was at, you know, because I really would like to thank that young man in person because he opened his door when he didn't have to. You know, and it was a bunch of us that ran up and that he allowed to come up into his apartment. So that's part of, I think, maybe the testament to the east side, though, right? Yeah. That they do help when it is critical. Right. But we shouldn't have to have something so critical for us to come together. But again, we're we come together, but we're helping all the people We're helping everybody but the people that really should be helped. I mean, okay, the Resource Center, I received the, a letter in the mail from them. They wanted me to fill out a little piece of form, little piece of paper with my name and address and, you know, and if I was inside the tops or in the parking lot. But then they had it if you were at East Utica and Maston or somewhere, one of those, and it's like when the shooter came to Buffalo and he got out of his car, he didn't aim for anyone on Landon. He didn't aim for anyone on Riley. And he didn't aim for anyone on Jefferson. He went straight for tops. And now I'm hearing that they want to compensate anybody that was within a mile radius of the shooting. And it was like, what did they do? They ran when the shooting started. No one tried to help us. But you want to compensate them? I mean, this is Buffalo. We've heard gunshots here and there, okay? So people talking about they're traumatized now because they've heard gunshots. It's not the first time you've heard sh gunshots in your neighborhood, but because there's funding, now everyone's traumatized. You know, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm on meds now, something I've never been on, you know? But I'm not being counted as the 514 fund, you know? Mm -hmm. They already said, the highest money is going to go to the deceased family. Then it's going to be the wounded. And the deceased, my heart goes out to them. They're at peace now. They are. But what about the people that's still living, that's living with this every single day? I can't go to the store by myself. I have to have someone go with me. You know, what about me? What about the other ones out there? You know? I would say that, you know, this platform definitely has ears. And so, you know, that's really, truly the question that we have for 
anyone who might be listening who could assist in this situation. Why is there so much red tape? What is the holdup? Why are, is it taking so long? I feel like you're a double or triple victim mm-hmm. here. Mental health. That's all you keep seeing on on TV is mental health is something to take serious. Mental health. Mental health can stop you from working just like a physical injury can stop you from working. But no one is counting the the mental status of what we're dealing with. Okay. Um, no one is reaching out to the people who made it out physically unharmed. They're reaching out to the families of the deceased. They're reaching out to the wounded, but they're not reaching out to the rest of us. And we've had support group meetings, and I really do feel that all of the victims who made it out of there physically unharmed, we really need to get together and let our voices be heard. Because this just doesn't make any sense about how they're treating us. We're like a non-factor. I mean, we were lucky we made it out blessed that we made it out but our trauma is not being taken as serious as the ones that were wounded or the deceased that of their families our our situation is just as serious as theirs and And we're not being counted for that in in essence it's also just as dire because the trauma the anxiety the everything that comes along with being the victim of a violent crime mm-hmm. um, comes with its own share of mental health issues, certainly, mm-hmm. and that does cause physical, physical pain, physical mm-hmm. issues and physical barriers to continuing on life as you knew it before or life as as you need to now remake it uh, into into what you need as you move forward. Um, There are some folks out there that deny this event even happened, Um, or they say the entire thing was staged. That doesn't make any sense. Do you have anything that you'd want to say to them? Go on Jefferson and see the building. Talk to the victims. I mean, it was real. I wish it wasn't real. I mean, I like I said, I went in here to get one bottle of Juicy Juice. And my whole life has been turned upside down for it. So, believe me, I wish it wasn't real. I don't I don't like feeling like this. I wouldn't that that means if it wasn't real, then the dead would still be here and the wounded wouldn't be hurt. But they are. So it happened. Do you have anything to say to the shooter? Would you? He's 18. Now. He, how, can he, how can a person at 18 have so much hate in his heart at 18? I mean, maybe if he was in his 40s, maybe it'd be unjustifiable and you could understand it. But at 18, I don't get it. And... I spoke to an attorney, which I won't say his name, but um, speaking to him, he basically told me that I don't matter because I wasn't shot or wounded. Yes, and he told me that any attorney that would take my case 
would be stuck with it and they wouldn't make any money off of it. And I asked him about uh, his parents, the shooter's parents, because uh, my best friend Daphne had said, um, what about their homeowner's insurance or something like that? So I was speaking to this attorney about that because his father or his family should be held to some degree because his father bought him the gun. You know, so where's 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 he being held accountable for it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, there's account an accountability issue. Right. He's 18, and whoever you know in New York State, you're responsible for your child till 23. He's 18, so his parents should be held accountable too, just because his father was stupid enough to buy him that gun. I mean, who buys their child a gun like that, really? Some people certainly believe it is their their right. It is their right to, to own a, a, a gun, but it's also their right to be responsible. And as their his parents would say, well, because of the COVID, he didn't have any human contact. Okay, well, if you seen that he was going through some things because he didn't have any human contact, then why would you buy him a gun? It's as simple as that. That's just stupid. Now you bought him a gun, and now all of these innocent bystanders have to deal with the aftermath of you being dumb buying him a gun. What do you want to see happen for the victims, living victims of this crime? What would you like to see? What is your ideal? I want them to be taken care of the way that they should, uh, uh, like with uh, mental health, counseling. They should have counseling free for as long as they need it without going through their insurance. But we don't. We have to use our insurance right now. So, I mean, I just think that any survivor should be getting whatever they need to, to heal. That's how I see it. I mean, I... I'm thankful that the community came together and, you know, gave away the food and had the McDonald's on ferry and, you know, all that extra stuff. And that was nice for the community. But again, what about the survivors? How many survivors really went back to Topsaw, you know, to get free food? Keisha, your story is heartbreaking on several different levels um and it is certainly a point that as a newsroom we definitely need to follow up with uh i thank you for being here and and having the courage to to tell your story um it just un unbelievable on so many fronts for for me um but we'll help you sort that out thank you well can i just say one more thing and as far as the funds that they have out there the applications and all of that stuff they're going to make it so hard for everybody to get to it and complete it i already know you know they're not going to make it easy and the people that they have sitting on this 514 fund and they're you know basically it says that they get to decide if you're going to get anything or not. 
So if they choose to say, well, I don't believe you were there, then they're not going to. And it's like, who are they to make that decision? Do you understand what I'm saying? Who are these people on this 514 fund to make that decision without talking to us, to talking to the victims? No one sat down and said, okay, well, I want to get all the victims together, all the survivors together, and we're going to discuss first what's going to do with this this money. Okay, no one said that to us yet. They're making, I, we just received letters stating that they're going to decide on who's going to get what, the deceased is going to get the most, and, or get the highest percentage, and then they'll decide on the rest. So they're making that decision for us, and it's I don't think it's right. I don't. And again, the deceased, my heart goes out to them, but they're at peace. I'm not. Keisha, thank you uh, for joining us today. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm host Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. Let's go, Buffalo. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 9, 2022. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, counter-racist suggestions. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Juicy juice. They got many ways of getting you. We talked. They talked about uh, high blood pressure, hypertension for Black people. Anyone classified as Black throughout the known universe, it can be a problem in the system of white supremacy, heart disease, and all of that. John Henryism talked about that for 13 years now. Juicy juice. Many things that can kill you, apparently, at the east side Buffalo Tops. Juicy Juice, crazy white man, racist white so- uh, race soldiers, not crazy, racist white race soldier, high fructose corn syrup. We got all kinds of things to kill you. Probably a bag of Cheetos. Lots of ways to take you out of here. Some of them take a little bit longer. Some of them can be a little bit faster. McDonald's got that in there too. Get your quarter pounder with cheese and wash it all down with an old juicy juice. Said the juicy juice was in high demand. It was only one left at the other one. It was sold out. That right there. Nothing healthy about juicy juice at all. I don't even know if it has juice in it technically like sugar and high fructose corn syrup and all that other nonsense, probably some food coloring and additives and water. Drink more water. Really try to never drink 
Ju what is that even? Juicy juice. <laughs> what? Eat some fruit. How about that? Go to the farmer's market. It's summertime. You can get watermelon and strawberries, and peaches and figs. Oh, I had figs at the beach. It was amazing. Blueberries and just go on and on. cherries. It's summertime. Pineapple. Like, do it up. Not juicy juice. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Oh, it's lots of from concentrate. I guess... They have different types of juicy juice. So you can get the regular juicy juice, or then you can get the 100% juice, juicy juice, which is from concentrate. And you do not want to be drinking juicy juice. This, all of this right here is just lots of sugar getting you ready for some diabetes. Drink more water. juicy juice. They don't even sell uh, juicy juice like most of the grocery stores where I shop, they don't even sell uh, juicy juice. You'd have to go like, I don't know Walmart. They don't really have Walmarts in Seattle proper. I think you'd have to go to like Renton. Um, trying to think. They probably have it at Safeway now that I'm thinking about it. Safeway or QFC. I'll look the next time I go, but most of the stores that I generally shop at, you would not even be able to purchase Juicy Juice. Gotta be joking. Big pardon. Microphone was being uncooperative, beg pardon, uh, but no juicy juice. Quickly, before we get to some of the folks who dialed in, uh, if they have commentary to share, I guess this is a twofer. So part one of this is we should have a guest on Monday. Buffalo is so important. Juicy juice aside, you heard from Keisha Douglas, one of the victims so important for so many reasons not to forget this to take this tragedy try to extract as much constructive information as possible about why this happened what does this mean what does it mean to be white what does this event massacre reveal about what it means to be white even at 18 lots to make sure that we process accurately about all of this. And again, hopefully Gusty has not been wasting everyone's time. I've been saying the book club mandatory. Why? Because we keep having all these guests coming on the program like Monday, white people and even snuck in a victim of racism, Dr. Dobson, who was pretty constructive, I thought, but to keep having all of these guests on, born in Buffalo, teach in Buffalo, write about racism in Buffalo, you really will not grasp the totality and why all of this is important 
unless you are paying attention following along in the book club and or at minimum reading absolute madness at some point beyond it is extremely important significant information but for people who've been listening in the book club hey you've heard about half of it you should be able to assess at this point now is this worthy of my time and energy is this worthwhile and if so why what does this help me understand about racism white supremacy and even specifically that terrorist attack from May of this year Keisha Keisha Douglas was just telling us about Monday Dr. Robert or it's Mark sorry make sure we get the name or I was right the first time Dr. Robert M. Silverman should be on the program he teaches uh, at the University of Buffalo up in New York a listener sent me one of his reports about racism white supremacy in Buffalo vacant properties in non-white areas right important drives down property values when you don't have you know these properties up and running and businesses booming and all of that good stuff people can come in and get their juicy juice I just checked reading more important than watching television Gus T just said well let me do an old basic check let's see what other you know reports and research because most of the time folks who are professors and what have you they don't just do one report they have to keep publishing and all that get that tenure right so I check what's one of the other reports that he did maybe it has something to do with Buffalo one of the other reports that he wrote William Worthy's concept of institutional rape revisited anchor institutions and residential displacement in Buffalo now certainly that caught Gus T's attention he explains this concept of institutional rape who is getting institutionally raped and then using a specific example happening in Buffalo where of course some black Buffaloians are being institutionally raped finish reading that one up tomorrow but that should be Monday Keisha Douglas sounds like that right there victim of institutional rape but that'll be Monday and again all of these will guests programs focusing on Buffalo hopefully worthy of time and energy this massacre hopefully will be remembered talked about in a constructive manner until this problem is solved this is why we should have a sense of urgency certainly live in the New York area have relatives in the New York area I mean my goodness man my children would despise Gusty I would be pestering them all summer long this is what we're going to be doing and if I lived in Illinois it would be the same thing now if I lived in Illinois maybe they might get away maybe you wouldn't hear as much about Peyton Gendron but if we lived in Illinois ooh, that fella that did the shooting 21 year old white man in Highland Park Illinois 
This is Gus T's submission. I have to read because a listener submitted a submission, uh, a, a suggestion as well about a better term than sundown town. Gus T's submission is racially restricted region. I had to think about it for a little while. Maybe there's something better. You all can think or come up with your own. If you think there is a better term than sundown town, that's what we're trying to get. Mine, racially restricted region. Now I thought and I said, now, hey, the whole planet is a plantation. You could say that everywhere is a racially restricted region. And I said, no, now being specific, I said, hey, let's, let's take where I was at the time. I was at Green Lake. Oh, it was spectacular. Another story, but I was at Green Lake. So I said, is there anything restrictive about this location based on racial classification? I said, no, not to my knowledge. I've walked the entire lake many, many times, had my hammock in different locations, hung out with people, never had a problem based on racial classification. That is not the case with Forsyth County, Georgia, and many other locations. One of them is suspected to be Highland Park, Illinois. Now, I posted about this earlier this week. Soon as I heard the name, I said, oh, that sounds familiar. And that's a Chicago suburb. I bet that might be a so racially restricted region. I looked online. James Lowen, author of the book Sundown Towns, even though he passed away, he made his archive of other towns that are on the list. Suspected racially restricted regions. Highland Park, Illinois is on the list. Then, just today, I checked the Chicago Tribune, which I guess that does count reading being more important than watching television. So their report what Highland Park residents want you to know about their city. I'm skipping down. I'm not reading the whole thing. Highland Park, which occupies 12 square miles of Lake County in Moraine Township is shaped like Michigan, like an oven mitt. Its western border runs along the north branch of the Chicago River. The lake is a natural border to the east. To the north, the city shares a border partly with Lake Forest, which is also a suspected racially restricted region, and partly with Highwood. Here is where the majority of Latinos live in Highland Park, not far from Highwood, which itself is home to a Latino community. Highland Park, however, is 90% white and 9% Latino, according to the U.S. Census, its largest minority, so-called. When residents mention Highland Park's diversity, they often mean Latino you should strike often if I mean hey I am a worthless Negro from Virginia but I mean I think so if it's a hundred percent ninety percent are white nine percent are Latino now put an asterisk there because hey that's not a racial classification they do have 
white Latinos. I mean, hey, we could be talking 99% white, 98% white, 95% white, Cameron Diaz type of thing. Who knows? That only leaves, uh, I'm scratching my head. I failed all the STEM work. 1%, I think. Negro logic. That means you're only, (laughs) you're not even talking about diversity. Like, don't talk to me like I'm a moron. This is a racially restricted region in terms of racial classification you don't have any diversity and Gus T just wants to make sure that I point this one out as well because I don't know if this got lots of widespread attention so that's twice since May a white shooter 21 or younger residing in a racially restricted region went on a shooting planned shooting rampage now that is one for a project I started all of that by saying oh if we lived in Illinois my children would despise me for the summer you think you're gonna sit around and horse around on Netflix metaphor well they do say horseplay horse around on Netflix and your phone with your friends and lollygagging at the beach we probably could go to the beach and all that but before we go to the beach we are going to get literature if we lived in Illinois we picked the library University of Illinois Champaign Northwestern DePaul Chicago State pick the institution whichever one we're closest to we're going what are we gonna say Highland Park Illinois now old Gus T more than a thousand miles from Illinois I just searched University of Washington catalog what did we find just with an old casual search for Highland Park Illinois let's see Sundown Towns, the book actually comes up a few times, which is interesting. Let's see. Study sees slurs by Highland Park cops from 2000. Let's see. ACLU, Highland Park Anti Racial Profiling Accord. That's from 2000. Uh, let's see. Jesse Jackson taking Highland Park cops to Washington. They don't even call him Jesse Jackson. They Jesse, first name. Uh, let's see suburban cop feud is federal case now Highland Park labor dispute mushrooms into racial uproar my goodness what language mushrooms Uh, man if I was a University of Washington affiliate I would be reading this whole report to you right now Highland Park man wants apology for arrest Uh, and it gives some of the detail a Highland Park man held for two hours for questioning in a bank robbery last month has asked the police and city council to apologize saying he was picked up solely because he is a worthless Negro from Illinois no but you fill in the blank you already know Uh, let's see 
That was from 1998. This one. Highland Park cops prove racial profiling alive and well. This is what I would be doing with my offspring. Like, we're going to research, especially since we just had listeners who dialed in talking about a victim of racism being the only black person at a party so-called in Forsyth County, Georgia and they ended up dead under suspicious circumstances with an equally suspicious investigation of the death. We're not going to have that. You're going to be very informed. Highland Park? I think that's a sundown town. Like, oh yeah, we are not hanging out there. <laughs> Forest Park? I think that's a sundown town as well. We studied about that. My dad ruined the whole summer. I had all my plans and he kept just dragging us to the funky old library. I gotta look up this and look up that and look up this at at minimum Yes, I'm very aware. Highland Park, racially restricted region. I'm never going there to just casually kick it. But that would be the other part of the project. Like, wow, twice since the end or middle of May. White, white men, 21 or under born in raised in racially restricted regions conducting these shooting rampages what is going on in Conklin Highland Park hmm uh, before we get to the callers let's see juicy juice know what to say about that uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be great uh, just make sure everyone gets at least one opportunity to share that would be great no metaphors that is all the time the case for the context of white supremacy it is super important uh, frequently the metaphors are used deliberately for confusion and deception victims of white supremacy counter-racist science is about specificity precision details metaphors is an absent of all of the above it's a lot of sloppiness and it allows for a lot of confusion I will remind about the metaphors much obliged the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh, if you know you're in a, mute, a noisy environment, again, make sure you use your mute button. That would be great. So we don't have a lot of unnecessary background noise. You can unmute get to a quieter area, share, and then uh, I guess go back to whatever else is happening in your environment. 
man, didn't we have an extraordinary week? I was like kind of thinking I couldn't even play everything. So they had the uh, former prime minister in Japan, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated. And then we did have the segment about uh, prime minister in uh, Britain resigning Boris Johnson sexual misconduct oh my god like what a week and then the Akron situation and the shooting in Highland Park I didn't even play the clip they arrested a pair of white men in Virginia they had planned to carry out a shooting in Richmond middle of the commonwealth what a seven day period it's been amazing first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed Hello, can be heard, please? Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everyone on the line and people that will listen to the broadcast. Good evening, Gus. Um, looking forward to the day you'll be doing better than right poorly because I'm hoping I'll be doing better too and everyone else. Um, so what you just said about the police made me think of something that I didn't want to say necessarily, but I think it's worth pondering. I was speaking with someone about um, how there are police departments from other states uh, marketing and uh, putting, what do you call those, billboards up where we are um, recruiting police. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's that bad. Um and so uh, the friend I was talking to mentioned something about a, a funeral he was at today and how there was private security. And it clicked in my head, oh, maybe a lot of the police were put in to become mm-hmm. private security. Just like when I was enlisted, a lot of people got out of the Marine Corps to be, um, what do you call it, uh, contractors um, and also mercenaries. Um even though there were government contractors. Well, you know, you got government contractors, people that don't really fight, you know, they do the supply, I want to be clear. And then there's people that are contracted to kill, a.k.a. mercenaries. So I I hope I didn't confuse anyone on that. But when you said um, about the people carrying out the attack, you might as well call it an exercise at this point. Um, it could be that these are police, it's, especially if they're older gentlemen. A lot of police are probably walking off the job because they can't. Maybe they're, I'm just speculating, maybe they're figuring out, I might as well walk away. I'm more dedicated to racism and white supremacy. Obviously, I want to be a full-on race soldier or something. I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, because at this point, I think we all need to come to terms with the fact that there is an active war happening on the ten terrestrial boundaries of the United States of America. Please, black people, I'm talking to y'all. What are we going to do? I've asked this many times, many times, many times. Again, I don't want to sound sardonic, but I am a victim. And on the real, what are we about to do? I know we got the code. Um, we have the advisement from all of the elders, outstanding I'm serious. I honor them daily. But again, this is an SOS from Irie in Louisiana. We are at war. What are we going to do now on to 
this stuff I was going to actually talk about. I'm not sure that um, doing that interview for that lady that was able to escape was a good idea because, one, this is a metaphor, but my grandmother being from the South, they're full of them. Um, she said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. She she also mentioned names. Um, I won't repeat who the people were, but I just, security-wise, I'm not, I'm not convinced that was a good idea to do on the face of that. And then also on the face of what her legal speculations are. So this was some really good due diligence on the side of the opposition posing as um, reporting. You know, good job for them, because that was a white woman that did that, right? I'm thinking she sounded white, but then again, mm. uh, let's see. I would like to put a request out for any celebrity, large and small, that listens to the cows to uh, cease and desist making any artwork, entertaining, playing any sports. Uh, showcasing yourself in any way, any form, or any manner for the uh, further enrichment of the system of racism, white supremacy, and also for the further enrichment of yourself and your survival unit only until the system is replaced with justice because there is a two-part process. Um, They're able to make it look like uh, it's not that serious. We're still playing basketball. We still we still got people releasing albums. We're still having award shows. We, you know what I'm saying? No, it's a very serious situation. Threat con Delta. We don't need any more entertainment. Please stop helping the white supremacists distract us. That's my compensatory request for victims of racism in the area of entertainment. Um, we're making the AI smarter is something my partner told me in regard to the first story. Um, I can't remember exactly what the first story was about right now, but he was telling me that when he, when there's a thing called the cat, the cat, catch-up or whatever it is, when they ask you, what is this? Is this a tree? Point to all the trees. He said he deliberately presses the wrong images at first because he wants to, um, confuse the AI. He's like, I'm not helping them teach the AI. And I was like, mm, yeah, that that would be part of the process. And then I thought about it some more, you know, I'm just pondering and they have you check off. I am not a robot. Okay, why am I checking that off? Are you just trying to validate um, security or, yeah, are you doing more than that? Giving the AI intelligence from people because computers only learn what we know basically. Um, and then on top of that, imagine all of the surveying that's been done that you've reported on this show. I just seen an article from the Institute of Justice about predictive policing. If you live in Florida, I'm sure the caller in Florida will tell you right now, what is it? Um, put, golly, I can't remember the name of that county. It starts with a P.O. Don't live there. They have that AI stuff going. And the last thing I want to say I'm sorry I took so much time. Jalen Walker got shot running from the police. But every white shooter has always been nicely escorted 
to lesser confinement. And I suspect for white supremacists, that is a sort of end of initiation into higher ranks of white supremacist groups. They're going to be received as some type of mid rank to you. In other words, to set a parallel, not to use a metaphor, but in the military, you can come in without any rank at all. Well, they get to come in E3. You know what I'm saying? And that's why they carry them in alive. I, that's my suspicion. Um, it's a it's a proud moment. It's like a crowning moment also. Um, they don't know peace. That is obvious to me. We're at war. Um, <laughs> and then we have to contend with machines. So I just ask everybody to stay codified, produce justice, and pray to whatever you pray to that's good. I'm praying to the ancestors and a couple other folks. Help us figure out what we're going to do, because I'm not sure how much time we're actually going to keep going in this modified fake stasis that we're in. That might have been a metaphor. I'm sorry. I'm frustrated, y'all. I'll meet my line. Thank you, Dust. Much obliged, uh, Irie. Uh, so this has been one that I've talked about for a long time. Uh, voices are just not reliable at all in terms of racial classification. So the person doing the interview with Keisha Douglas was Bridget J. Paul Valenza. She has many images online. She is very definitely not someone who would be classified accepted as white. Absolutely not. So this is a non-white female, Bridget J. Paul Valenza, uh, who did the interview at W. BFO uh, July 1 uh, with regards to uh, and I think it might have been Polk County the re- region you're referring to in Florida just to guess if I were to take one um, two other quick things and then we can move forward this is one we tried to correct with words very important uh, we meaning black people and or non-white people in total are not at war war is being waged against us that is very important because a question was asked what are we going to do part of it is correctly articulating what is happening we are not at war I don't know why that gets said so frequently that's in my view that is just you know additional part of the confusion because that is absolutely not the case not a comment on what should be happening we should be whatever but just in terms of what is that ain't war is being waged against us and unfortunately many of us are very confused about what that means now that even gets to now what are we going to do that part I think Mr. Fuller's concept very important united independent because that correction that I made before war is being waged against us and so many of us are confused about that it's really impossible for us we us to coordinate activities because we are so confused so it's we see that all the time. It's difficult to get consensus about much of anything. So it really ends up just being a united independent. What am I going to do? Or my specific group, what am I 
going to do in response to what looks like the escalating war of white supremacy racism against non-white people worldwide. That, I think, is the more accurate because, I mean, hey, it's really hard to get non-white people in unison, even a small number of non-white people in unison about much of anything. Live demonstrations on the cows all the time. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hey Gus, a uh, victim from New Jersey. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you um, you worded it like that because I, I definitely agree. Um, war is definitely being waged against us. Um, on this side of the planet, on this side of uh, what we call the United States, there's a story that gained traction, and uh, it's about a bodega, a man that's classified. Um, as Hispanic, um, I don't know if he was a worker or he was the actual owner. Um, from the looks of him, um, eh, you know, he, he he definitely couldn't pass for white, but however, he is classified as Hispanic. He got into an altercation with a black male over a declined EBT card. Um from the looks of the film, the uh, blackmail um, basically goes behind the counter and starts to shove this Hispanic male. Um, a shoving um, match ensued, and there was a, a, a little tussling, and the Hispanic store worker or owner stabbed a black male in the neck or stabbed him somewhere in the body. And again, this was over uh, the black male's girlfriend EBT card being declined. But however, there is no audio. This is the narrative. But back to what you were saying and what the previous callers were saying about war being waged on us. And there's been talk about spiking crime. So once this store owner was arrested, there was an outcry from the community and other people saying that, you know, this guy was, it was self-defense. They should let him go. Uh, the New York Post, who's definitely been, um, in my mind, I can classify them as a anti-black newspaper. Um, it has a headline that says, Hero, NYC bodega clerk um, Jose Alba would be cheered for his self-defense on Staten Island. My question is, what made him a hero? I come to the conclusion that he killed a black male. That's what made him a hero. Um, I would just basically say since we are, since war is being waged on us, I think it's very important to understand if you get into any altercation, whether it's a shouting match, a shoving match, or a fist match, you cannot predict 
the outcome of that situation. You cannot predict the level of retaliatory force that the next person is going to use. But however, I do see a promotion of vigilanteism, if that's a word, to be basically used mostly on black people. The fact that the New York the New York newspaper, the New York Post is cheering this on and calling this man a hero. New York City does not have what you would call a stand-your-ground law. But however, he was in his place of business. I don't know if the Castle Doctrine applies. However, this was a tragedy. There was nothing heroic about this. But what I got from this story that war is being waged on us, and they're going to promote more acts of vigilante violence on black people, especially when they keep pushing the narrative that there's this spike in crime. And you ask, what are we going to do? Um, I really talk to other victims that are um, receptive, you know, just yesterday I talked to a victim. This victim tends to mostly blame black people. Mainly he brings up crime statistics. He brings up single motherhood. He brings up black people not working hard. He brings up everything but white aggression, white supremacy, white violence in the war that has been waged on black people. So when I encounter black people that speak like this, I cut the conversation so short. Because I just, you know, just, just, just for my mental sanity, I'm not going back and forth with other black people. But um, I would just say black people just basically be alert. Um, they're definitely, in my opinion, they're promoting vigilante violence on black people. I'll close. Much obliged, <clears throat> victim in New Jersey. I posted the report that you <clears throat> just referenced. Uh, the hero NYC bodega, his, na his name is uh, Jose Alba. The, uh, and he looks like he incidentally is also uh, would be non-white uh, unless I'm in the era they have his uh, picture at the front here uh, but <clears throat> yeah you can see all of them they have really uh, gruesome pictures they don't show the killing I guess maybe they have the video so maybe I guess you can see that too but they have uh, you can see the knife that he talked about it looks like man we just talked about one death wish in uh the 22 caliber killing case they were talking about death which was aired on television during the middle of this case and uh even the sequel came out as the trial was you know going on because the trial lasted for years uh but <clears throat> and they speculated you know wow did the person see death wish charles bronson and get you know inspired to go out and you know avenge some wrong that some negro male has done to them <laughs> and that sort of thing but we were just talking about all of this and that was speculated as to what might be happening with the case but yeah with the spike in crime and all of that that they're talking about in in new york city 
very dangerous environment for black people and I would say black males specifically a hero for stabbing to death a black male and then south of New York in Akron they shot at uh, Mr. Walker Jalen Walker shot at him 90 times hmm war being waged indeed uh, the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, other folks uh, we have not heard from Now we are Rob in California. Uh, greetings. Um, so I got bumped off the line. Um, I don't know what happened. The phone just hung up, and I was trying to call back in. Phone uh, um, line was just not responding. Um, that went on for at least three or four minutes. Pardon me, Rob. Is not clear. It sounds like uh, either you're moving around or uh, you're moving the phone around or you're brushing up against the microphone or something. Uh, it's very, if there's oh, lots is that, of. Is that better? It, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I was trying to call in. Um, and was having some, a lot of trouble with the line. Um, I don't know exactly what was going on, but for like three or four minutes, I was unable to get through. Um, so finally able to get through. Um, it has been, I haven't called in in a couple of weeks, but in those couple of weeks, <laughs> I have been uh, physically assaulted on my job. Um, <clears throat> all surrounding my uh, electric bike. Um, the uh, I train most of the new workers that I work with right now. Um, younger Hispanic white guy um, is now my supervisor. Um, and so he just got the job, and uh, so yesterday the other uh, supervisor told me that the new supervisor encountered the situation, the male, that's, uh, the Hispanic white, encountered a situation where he felt that things wasn't going the way that they should go for him, and he disclosed to her, Oh, I have a job lined up for $20 an hour. I'm going to quit. Um, and this particular Hispanic, uh, white male, um, was promoted over, I would say three or four employees that been at the company, uh, let's say at least two years before, uh, this person arrived. Um, I would also like to touch on the um, 
black guy that was uh, shot over 60 times or shot 60 times in Akron, Ohio. Um, that's been a topic um, around the place where I uh, live. And when the, when the topic was brought up um, and I didn't act surprised or um, even concerned um, about the situation, um, because I understand that in this system that we live under, uh, that more than likely won't be the last time that something like that happens, um, maybe before the end of the week. And, um, the last thing that I'll say is, uh, I've heard it been, been being said that war is being waged against us. Um, I do believe that is an accurate, uh, statement and just to, uh, put an answer out there to the question, um, that, uh, Irie in Louisiana asks, like, what are we going to do? Um, people that's classified as black, I think we doing it. Um, and what I mean by that is the response is pitiful. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't see that pitiful response changing. Um, like I'll use myself as an example. Um, I have three children. Um, and when I, uh, decided that I wanted to, um, started to teach my children about the reality that we live in. And, um, I got, uh, resistance from trying to teach the children. And I was told that I was teaching my children to hate white people. And so if, <laughs> if that's going to be the response, um, from people that I'm interconnected with and, you know, where I'm trying to uh, teach people that's younger than me, if that's going to be their response, um, I think that people that's classified as non-white black are already um, showing what we are going to do in response to war being waged against us. And with that, I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking the call. Much obliged, Rob in California. Uh, let's see the number again: seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. That is horrendous uh, to hear about the abuse that you suffered uh, in your workplace setting. And the bike he's told us about that before the. Uh, electric bike that he got which again is not a Lamborghini we're not talking about something that costs you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars like they're pretty accessible and what uppity negro got in the liquor does he think he is mm-hmm that and even the promotion talked about that get person comes in the white didn't I just say that the white 
Latino. They get to come in and get all the promotions and everything. I'm blowing this dump. Got me a better job lined up already. See you clowns later. Like, dang. Why wouldn't you promote someone who's been loyal, hardworking, efficient? Ah, that nigger with the electric bike. Get on out of here. Mm. Yes, and incidentally, that would be another the grandsister playing around with sex. Not suggesting Rob did that, but just when we have not had thorough dialogue way before we get to the bedroom because that is very common. Try to teach your offspring about racism, white supremacy, and you get accused of spreading hate. Might even be called a racist yourself. That's another reason. But hey, we're going to the library. We're doing a research project on Highland Park. Now say that I'm teaching hate there. We're going to the library. We're going to do a search and come back with books. They can write a report on what they learned about this here place right in our state. That would be if we lived in Illinois. That's the way it would be. We're just learning local history. But again, all of that is discussed way before the bedroom. That way, if you start to hit what you want to teach all that hate, what kind of militant radical? Whoop, 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 whoop. We will postpone the bedroom activities maybe indefinitely. Other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally. If you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes. uh, Next to the last meeting uh, with the uh, DCS program uh, this afternoon. Uh, It was uh, primarily uh, a uh, presentation of awards uh, to the uh, young fellows and uh, encouraged that uh, the parents also show up and uh, witness the uh the presentation uh you'd be surprised on how many parents don't show up but uh nevertheless uh well you may not be surprised uh but uh uh in the meantime uh while the preparation was being done uh for such an event uh i was asked to uh conduct uh uh discussions with the uh entire group uh of uh different subjects amongst people uh in the world uh that's been happening uh somewhat over the la- the last week or so uh and th- and I'm about to, I'm about to state on a good way to avoid what the last caller was was uh, 
being charged with of uh, teaching children uh, 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 race to be racist or hate white people. You you ask the you ask the person what they would like to talk about, and that's what I did with the uh, with the young fellows. I asked them what they would like to talk about, and everything that they wanted to talk about had a. Uh, issue involving racism in itself. Uh, uh, they uh, so we just had discussions. Uh, one of them was uh, the uh, incident that took place in Ohio. Uh, I uh, used that instance to uh, brief them on what to do when you encounter law enforcement. Uh, the three F's, I mentioned that, uh, you know, to don't flee, don't fuss, don't fight. Uh, I asked them one by one. Uh, it was uh, nine of them today nine of them a day, we sat in a circle, a circle. Uh, and uh, I had each one of them to stand up and state on what they would do, on what they would do. And they, they were pretty, pretty, you know, pretty sharp on on uh, uh, the code on it. Uh, all of them, basically, some of them stated directly that they, the whole idea is the first is to uh, uh, survive the encounter. Uh, but basically, most of them basically stated in a roundabout way that ended up being the same thing of surviving the encounter. They just, they just was, you know, longer in their in their discussion on on that particular uh, answer. Uh, so all of it was acceptable as far as uh, uh, you 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 can understand that the young person that's standing up talking to their other young peers that they are saying something logical. That's what I got out of it. Uh, and, uh, so that went, that went pretty well. Um, uh, we also, we, we talked about, uh, we talked about the incident that took place in Japan. Uh, and, uh, I was asked by Mr. Clark to talk on quote unquote gun laws, that sort of thing. So I asked them, well, what would you do? What would you do if you had the, the uh, influence, the quote unquote power to, uh, to uh, uh, have a, uh, uh, a bill or something uh, concerning gun laws? What, what would your ideas for a gun laws to be in, in, and gave just about all of them, not necessarily all of them, because some of them like seven, eight years old. Uh, uh, but I gave everybody a chance uh, to to speak on it, and I would say probably all of the teenagers gave a, gave answers to that question. Uh, so you know, the discussion was pretty well. We went over maybe about maybe about uh, a couple of hours as far as the discussion is concerned. And primarily they were, they were the ones who were doing the talking. I was just asking, asking them questions. 
from that standpoint. So that went pretty well. It went pretty well. And uh, that's basically basically what uh, took place today. Thank you. Right on. <clears throat> Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Always great to ask the young people questions to get them talking and sharing their views. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you have commentary to share? We miss you totally. Hello, Gus. It was Pasco County. That's Pasco. all I want to say. Got with it. Pre- yep, with the predictive policing. Mm. Much obliged getting our Florida jurisdictions together. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, that we missed, did you have commentary to share? Peace, peace. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, no doubt. Yeah, uh, so greatly appreciate the broadcast as usual. I didn't get to catch all of it, but uh, at least probably the second half, if not more. So uh, without going over the five minutes, so I did get a good deal of notes in, and I'll just keep them concise. I think firstly... The portion that I did hear about Venezuela, Uganda, and India struck me as particularly interesting as far as how uh, Venezuela was being framed given the current geopolitical situation. Um, It it sounded to me, uh, I could be mistaken, but it sounded to me like that was a a U.S.-based media outlet, and so given the... uh, posture with regard to Venezuela that that the U.S. has at present, um, particularly around questions of, um, you know, what are termed natural resources, uh, gas, et cetera, oil, uh, that struck me as interesting, the way that it seemed like Venezuela was being couched into this broader dialogue around non-white uh, nations, if you will, or whatnot, um, with respect to Uganda and India, and it seemed like more of the same as far as just uh, counter non-white um, territories, and particularly, you know, the continuous anti-Venezuela propaganda. So that that did strike me uh, um, off of that report, uh, where where it seemed like there were attempts being made at putting or positioning Venezuela as like a a failed state or the like, um, along with Uganda and India and, um, you know, the continent and India and Venezuela, um, all all of these nation states, um, many of these territories outside of the U.S.'s kind of uh, primary ambit are seemingly sensibly distancing themselves from uh, some of some of the racism, white supremacism that's been going on for so long in terms of the geopolitical uh, space. And, and so that, that struck me as noteworthy. Also, 
this question around um, uh, uh, Robert Cremo III and uh, all of the murders that um, he's allegedly responsible for, and uh, it doesn't seem as though there's any real question as to the um, veracity of that. Uh, it, it really reminded me a lot in certain aspects of what we've been learning about Joseph G. Christopher with regard to the 22 caliber killer and this and that, um, down to questions of um, his familial uh, situation and how they've described that, even in just while listening to the broadcast, just doing some quick keyword searches, in part because I haven't had a chance to really get in depth uh, with regard to this story as yet, but, you know, just just have been catching kind of the contours of it. But it, it seems as though um, Cremo's father had run for mayor uh, in their local area, lost, but uh, that struck me as interesting as far as just like the family background. And there are some uh, articles about some some people that are aware of or were aware of them and their family that were calling into question some of these narratives around how surprising this might have been or this and that. And uh, particularly the question around the family quote, not wanting to move forward with the, uh, it, it sounded as though it was some sort of mental health treatment that was being offered up. Uh, that that seemed particularly interesting where the uh, this individual, his family were being given all sorts of options around how to address the issues, um, which they seem to have just decided to reject. And uh, that doesn't strike me as the kind of treatment that many of us, um, those who are uh, racialized as, as black or non-white or what have you, um, we're not often afforded those kinds of options, you know, especially if they're coming through and finding all manner of daggers and swords, et cetera, um, at, a, at our residence behind, um, you know, concerns about doing self-harm or harm to others. And uh it seemed within that report that there was a great deal of uh, lack of seriousness or there was not nearly enough seriousness uh, being attended to or being directed toward the matter at hand, um, particularly behind the uh, commentator or journalist or what have you, I, don't, I didn't catch their name, but who was reporting on that, um, talking about uh, how, how um, Cremo was found wearing women's clothing and this and that. Uh, it, it, it just seemed as though there was, even in the tone, that was being expressed as though this was perhaps something uh, humorous or uh, whimsical or even something to be kind of lauded as, you know, look at how much effort or uh, attention this individual took to their activity toward, uh, you know, snuffing people out, uh, just indiscriminately killing people. And then, uh, and then the, the, uh, one of the additional commentators who uh, responded, uh, I didn't catch their name either, but they used the analogy that it was like, uh, that they, there was the need for an ensemble of laws, and then they, they brought that into the analogy of like a Swiss army knife. Uh, there was need for a, quote, nimble tool. And it just struck me as very, uh, you know, I'm reminded of the, the Neely Fuller Jr. quote that, that um, 
you often drop here on on the cows as far as tacky it doesn't get better than tacky i mean we're talking about people's lives being taken indiscriminately and um in in mass numbers and you're you're making a a, a reference to a swiss army knife it just it 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 seemed very um uh, incommensurate to the 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 situation at hand, uh, it almost seemed as though they kind of maybe noticed that shortly after the fact, um, and maybe kind of um, decided to take a different direction with their language. But uh, that I, I I couldn't help but notice that Swiss Army knife analogy that was dropped, um, and uh, I I, I want to make sure to keep it concise so I'll, I'll skip some of the notes that I have here but I mean all of what has gone on with regard to um, you know Jalen um, Williams and um, the 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 uh, pardon Jalen Walker uh, excuse me Jalen Walker uh, who was who was shot just you know, I, I believe it was 60 times, just an, an inordinate number of, of shots, and we've seen this so many times. Um, but the fact that they, in in spite of all of this, in spite of all that we've seen all this time, decided to handcuff uh, him after the fact. Uh, it, it, it wasn't, I wasn't aware of the fact that uh, it sounds as though he also had just recently lost his fiance, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, and and you know. Pardon if if um, if I am mistaken on that, but a a close loved one um, had also transitioned recently. Just thinking about the compounding trauma that all of that uh, points toward, all of that is and represents. But then still, this journalist felt the need to harp on or or to emphasize this question of the quote unquote recovered gun in um, Jalen Walker's car. And um, again, pardon for for uh, misnaming this brother, but um, you know the names are are, are so constant. So, um, but in Jalen Walker's car, um, and it just seems as though, regardless of what's said, how it's responded to, how irrelevant that is to the situation at hand, as far as what actually happened, uh, basically all of the reports that I've seen or heard seem to want to underline or or emphasize and highlight uh, that fact. Um, well, and fact is not even the right word. I, I, I don't know if, if um, this individual, if this brother, um, Jalen Walker, had um, a, a firearm in his vehicle, but it seems obvious to me that that's irrelevant to the fact that uh, he was slaughtered in a completely barbaric and um, needless and uh, racist fashion. Um, I also, just the, the goggles. I, I had not heard anything about these goggles that uh, the sister, I believe uh, her name was Keisha, mentioned in the interview about uh, the trauma that, that she has incurred behind um, the, the Topps grocery store shooting. And so I just wanted to highlight that because for me, a lot of these kinds of details uh, often end up getting uh, lost or suppressed or what have you, and I didn't see anything about uh, Peyton Gendron wearing goggles 
and I, I did another quick um, search and didn't see anything really in, in any of the news reports about goggles. I did see a, a couple of images of uh, the aforementioned um, Robert Primo wearing goggles, and so that did strike me as kind of odd uh, that, that both of these uh, white supremacist mass shooters uh, are apparently are wearing goggles out here. Uh, you know, perhaps it's not that relevant, and pardon if it is not, but it, it struck me as odd and, and noteworthy. Um, and so I hear the unmute, and I'll leave it there because perhaps I've gone over my five minutes. But appreciate it, and, and uh, shouts to the cows, and shouts to everyone um, who's participating. Peace. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, I'm. Hmm. Hmm. Now that you said that, I'm going to have to go back and look at the original reports to see, because I remember they said he had tactical gear and all the rest because uh, Aaron Salter Sr., I believe, the black uh, former enforcement officer who was doing security at the top store, uh, they said he fired at him, but he had on his tactical gear so it didn't inflict any damage, and then he killed uh, Mr. Salter. But I don't, I'll have to go back to look to see if they mentioned goggles or some sort of uh, eyewear specifically I don't recall it's been two months basically at this point so yes I had to go back to look to see if they mentioned that component of the report and the uh, audio report that was discussing the school situation in Uganda and Venezuela and India that was PBS so yes so called or US uh, news outlet talking about these predominantly non-white regions uh, other non-white uh, yes, other non-white people, other callers that we've missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary to share before we conclude, may I be heard? Our caller in Florida, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host the listeners and callers. Um, I like that term, Gus, uh, and that's one thing that I've been doing as well is trying to be innovative and uh, come up with terms as well. Uh, so, I, you know, I want to um, commend you on that term right there. And the next one was the, uh, the I-75. I was helping someone. I don't know if I mentioned that before. It was a black female that was helping a, uh, a a black male elder to do like a um I think it was like a probate or something with like a old D document from like the nineteen forties about uh either his land was connected to or next to an area that was uh that had like a, it was either a turnpike or the interstate road was built to go through it. So that reminded me of that. And there was the, the segment about the victim of racism, Jalen Walker, that was shot. And I could just sense the, or notice the, uh, the, how, it, how it impacted the black male that was being interviewed. And I did see other reports too at 
people were saying, you know, this is this was a a very not well maybe they didn't use very good person. This was a, a good person that we knew and everything. But I thought also about how they were talking about the deep fakes. I think that's what they were talking about, deep fakes and how it can affect how the media or the white supremacist media can portray certain situations and how it can put things and display uh, news reports and things like that. Um, but that that was just another tragic, sad report for like the 60 shots. And I think it was mentioned that 90 shots were actually fired. Um, I have, I have one report here locally. And I know you mentioned about how the, the thought process of white people are di- is different. I think, I think that's what you had mentioned the other day or yesterday. And I was, I saw it was a report down in Marion County where it's nine white people, right? And this been going on since 2018 where they use donuts, right? They went to Krispy Kreme and went inside of a dumpster to get decaying donuts and pastries and go out into the woods to use dogs to go after black bears, black bears to bait them to come get the, the, the donuts and the pastries and peanut butter. I mean, like just the, you know, the, the mentality and get the dogs, hounds and record it and laugh and put and post it on Instagram. So they're just now, uh, starting to convict some of these people and it's white men and women in here. Um, I think the main guy's name is Dustin Reddish, like 25 years old. And they they have him and his wife on there posting up pictures with a hanging bear. Um, just the, the sick pathology. Uh, but yeah, nine people was arrested. And then the, to mention, it was another case up there in Illinois. I think you may have heard of of the uh the Joliet, I think it was in Joliet, I think that's the name of the town in Illinois where the, the white people killed the black males and they were uh engaging in sexual intercourse like after they um murdered them. So just just very just sick the system of white supremacy. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, caller in Florida. The Joliet case is uh, Dr. Tommy Curry. Dr. Tommy J. Curry mentions that one quite a bit. Um, He mentioned it on the program before and uh, has written about it as well uh, and talking about just exactly that. White people have a totally different thought process. Uh, in that case, is not even like ancient history. The one he's talking about in Illinois, that's like, I think like 2013, 2014, something. I mean, within the last 10 years or so. And they killed them and then had sexual intercourse uh, intercourse on the corpses and everything. Necrophilia 
One of the words I was just talking about. Oh, that's Joey Christopher, where he got his girl. We just read that in the book club uh, two days ago, where he got his girlfriend to come. Why don't you take some pictures at the graveyard? That'll be great. Come over here next to this tombstone. Mmm, give me that sexy look. Mmm. Necrophilia. Anyway, um, and I mean, hey, I am a vegan, proud vegan. I said I went to Green Lake earlier today. I had vegan pesto pizza in my hammock at the lake. It was amazing. And there were so many young ladies at the lake today. It was incredible. Lots of scenery, great pizza, beautiful weather. <sighs> Tricking bears with Krispy Kreme donuts. So you can record like that's like snuff flicks, right? They uh that's what they call it. they make like videos of somebody being killed or whether sometimes it might be authentic trick the bears to come out black bears even said that I thought that was important right he said the black bears get the nigra bears so we trick them and then get the hounds and sick them and, and watch them fight and oh, isn't there a great horror on me what that that's exactly what I'm talking about who does this he said it was males and don't put that on toxic masculinity who does this why are you doing this? You don't have you're in Florida. I'm sitting here doing all this. You could go to the beach. Go fishing. So many go to Disney World. Go root for the hurricanes. Go do some uh Tim Tebow history. Learn about Polk County. Learn about the history of the cracker influence. You have an endless list of things to do. We want to go dumpster dive for Krispy Kreme donuts. To lure black bears. To make snuff videos. What does it mean to be white? Oh, they said Joseph G. Christopher in the hunting lodge with his dad. They said he had the buck mounted in the bedroom. What does it mean to be white? Again, one group is engaged in war. That's something else to keep in mind as well. Anywho, before we wrap up, I have a request, right? So anybody you listened to all the way to the end, you are with the COWS context of white supremacy. So if you have JSTOR access, like we have students, anything like that, uh, JSTOR is like, if you go to the library and do your research, you'll learn, oh, JSTOR, great, awesome archive. So if you have JSTOR access, right, if you're a college, university student, professor, whatever it is, if you could nab 
in the next like 12 hours like this is one of those that's like a right now type of a deal because the download is quick that's seconds uh by sunday 1 p.m pacific this request will be null and void it totally will not matter but if you can do it quickly within the next 10 hours if you could nab this book it would be great because we should have a program on monday dr robert Silverman, we will go back to Buffalo. I already read you something. Institutional rape, that's one. He did a whole book, Affordable Housing in U.S. Shrinking Cities From Neighborhoods of Despair to Neighborhoods of Opportunity. Question mark. This is by Robert Mark Silverman, published in 2016. You can download the entire book. This is what I mean. Go to colleges and universities. So, the only favor I really need is the now, the immediacy of this. By tomorrow, the University of Washington Library will be open. So I say, eh, get out of here. I don't need your help. I got it. The only reason I'm asking because I'd rather have it now because then I don't have to go to the library. I could do other things with my time and energy because I already have it in hand. If we don't have anyone who has that access, no problem. I will get it tomorrow. But someone does. That would be great. And really, I don't even need the whole book, even though, you know. I'll take it if you can get it. I'd probably take the whole thing myself tomorrow. But I really only need chapters 1, 6, and 7. Chapter 6 specifically is all about Buffalo. That's the one that I would like to lock in on for the interview. But I would take the whole book. You know, If I have to go tomorrow, then I will take the entire book. But Dr. Silverman should be with us now again. Is this a white man who teaches at the University of Buffalo and has written numerous books, reports, studies about the history of racism in Buffalo. Does he know about Joseph G. Christopher? Anywho, the whole way that I've been nagging you all about this Christopher case, man, oh man, I am so glad that I did. This is what a listener wrote. We'll wrap it up for the day. A listener emailed me this 18 minutes ago. I've been asking, has anyone heard of Joey? And no one has. I found out my sister-in-law, her father, is from Buffalo, presumably born in Buffalo. Mr. Fuller talks about the specificity of that. I asked them to ask him if he knew Joey. They got back to me and told me he responded immediately asking why they were asking to make a long story short his girlfriend at the time her father was one of the victims whose heart was removed now we should know this story well enough at this point we've read half of Catherine Pellinero's book and we heard Matt Greida and we heard Frank Dobson the two victims who had their heart removed Ernest Shorty Jones Ooh, and that's a cowbell Oof. so Ernest Shorty Jones Parlor Edwards those are the two that had their heart removed so that would be who this person is related to this person's uh, I guess her sister-in-law's 
father's girlfriend at the time. His girlfriend at the time, her father. Yes, girlfriend. Uh, sister-in-law's father's girlfriend at the time. Sister-in-law's father's girlfriend at the time. The father of the girlfriend was either Parlor Edwards or Ernest Shorty Jones. Wow. They didn't tell me his name. Don't have to. It's only one of those two. I asked them if they could ask him. I would try to get more information. Uh, her father also resides in Akron, Ohio. Yee, home of the recent police shooting. This study has been amazing. Asking questions. Wow. Just wondering why we haven't heard of this man. That's the question that I have been asking. Now again, just like with Highland Park, I did my research and hey, I'm quite a ways away. If I was in Illinois, I'd have probably had I've had that article about Jesse Jackson right now. But man, Joseph G. Christopher. Gus T is literally thousands of miles from Buffalo. We have had. There are only three books to my knowledge about this case, and we've had two of the authors as guests on this program, and we're reading the other book in the book club. I have nearly 300 articles about this case. They have whole Nightline segments, Tony Brown's articles, all of the information. I've been posting articles all the way as we go. Dozens of them and haven't even shared everything. How who could even do all of that? Haven't even found everything. They have whole articles talking about Ernest Jones, whole articles talking about parlor at man. If this is Ernest Jones relatives, Ernest Jones is the one I said, cowbell. That's the one where allegedly girlfriend Zoe told him to put that gun down you don't need that shorty and then felt guilty about it and Ernest Jones is the one who was confronted by the killer what are you doing with this white woman that would definitely be a victim I would be interested in talking to like wow relatives if either one really but I mean wow it's even more with Mr. Jones because of you know they actually had some interaction with the killer but again this case should be known for many reasons particularly what we just had happen nobody wants to make a connect how can this happen again the tops grocery store and everything no connection hmm hunting even you got generations of white hunters in their 20s they come in hunting gear to east side buffalo to kill black people as many black people as they can hmm. monday we will see so Dr. Robert Silverman, is he another white person? Writes about racism. Writes about racism. Teaches at the University of Buffalo. Does he know about 
Joseph G. Christopher. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We shall see. Much obliged for everyone tuning in. Hopefully it has been worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best. We made it through so-called July 4th, or some of us did. Some of us did not. Uh, Sobriety would still be a good policy. Lots of dangers. Need for excellent thinking, maybe life-saving decision-making at a moment's notice. You're out and about. Someone seems volatile, loud, aggressive. You should be thinking this person could be armed. Lots to consider when out and about. You never know. This could be Peyton Gendron. Mr. Cremo. Like I said, I didn't even get the report in about the fellas in Virginia. It's a duo. Sobriety for lots of reasons. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device. We need all of our attention and we're doing the small things to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice ASAP No name calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring. Mandatory, teach your local. I'm not teaching hate. I am teaching local history. Now, if we live in Illinois, we're going to learn about Highland Park racially restricted region if we live in New York we're probably going to learn about Conklin racially restricted region and we're going to make sure we nobody in this household is ignorant about Joey 22 caliber white terrorist cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)